Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. Ah, greetings. Yes, it is I, the Count. And I'm about to find out what the number of the day is. Oh, I wonder what it will be. <clears throat> yes, perhaps it is the number... One. No. Uh, but possibly number... Two. No. Could it be... Three. No. Then it must be... Four. No. Oh, this suspense is too much. I hope it is... Five. Celebrate! Here are one, two, three, four, five bats! <laughs> Anyone for cake? anniversary new year we're gonna stir things up and i'm starting off the show this time by saying jeff that little ditty starting off the show a little something out of our normal selection of music but pretty uh, apropos that's the classic jazz tune take five from the dave brubeck quartet from the uh, 1960 album i had it right here in front of me and it just went away time out uh, that is a 1959 album. See, I did it again. I, <laughs> that's a classic jazz tune. It was used for a lot of uh, television shows, intros or outros back in the day. I think, I'm pretty sure it was the Today Show had that as their intro for one, uh, one point in the 1960s. Classic tune. That's a Desert Island album for me. If I was to take an album to live and that's the only jazz album I could listen to, I mean, that would certainly be one of those I would consider kicking off our first show here in the new year of 2022. Now, we're doing this in the past. It's it's 2021 when we're recording. It's not even Christmas yet. We're a little ahead of the game. So we're assuming that everything went well at the start of the new year, but who knows anymore. So hopefully 2022 has started off nice and, and things are calm and, and the world is in a good place. Jeff, welcome to <laughs> and everyone out there to uh, the January 2022 edition of the Classic Chorus Club podcast. Episode 65, our five-year, I guess it's anniversary. I'm tempted sometimes to call it birthday. Either way, we've been doing this for five years. 
we sometimes stretch for the theme just a little bit, but we're going to do three movies that all have the number five in the title from three different decades, which I think is kind of interesting. The first one is five from 1951. The next one is Dimension Five from 1966. And the last one is Devil Times Five from 1974. Three very different movies, different eras. Usually when we have themes, there's something that connects the movies, whether it's it's the overall, I guess, theme of the movie, or maybe it's the actor or actress or director or what have you. These three films normally would not play together in a triple feature. Probably one of our more diverse episodes in the five years we've been doing the show. And I think that's kind of cool, though. Well, Rich, for those that don't know, I'm going to introduce myself. My name is Jeff Owens, and I am from ClassicHorrors.club. I'm Richard Chamberlain from the Kansas City Cinephile at KCCinephile.com and MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. Since you opened the show, do you want to bang the gavel and officially open the meeting? Boy, this is just really, we're in a bizarro <laughs> world. Yes, let's let's kick off this meeting proper and call it to order now. Let's do a quick roll call of new members. It has not been very long since we recorded the last episode, so we just have two, but we're very happy to have them. And this time, Rich, I don't know what happened, but I actually welcomed them both on the Facebook group page. So we want to welcome verbally Rick Thompson and Matthew Kowalski. Glad to have Matthew. He's well known from participating in the B-Movie cast. Welcome. Since we are recording this a little early, we don't have any feedback. However, we have put the call out for people to join us in celebrating the party of our fifth anniversary. And in the event that some comes in, between the time we edit the show and post at mid-January, we will insert that, possibly with some impromptu responses from us. Maybe not. It just depends what we get. Hey, everyone, we're back. We did get some feedback. People took the time and energy to send us something, so we owe an acknowledgement of that specific to the person instead of just saying, insert feedback here. The first one from Steve Turret. Hi, Rich. Hi, Jeff. Congratulations on your fifth anniversary, the anniversary of Wood. I know you guys are going to probably be showing or talking about Ed Wood movies, because, I mean, what else would you do on the Wood? That kind of stuff. But wait a minute. I'm looking at your, oh, you're doing movies with the number five. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just realized you're doing movies with five. Well, that's excellent. That's a good, I mean, people would have thought you would have did that wood. I like it. You're subverting expectations by doing something different, and that is one of the reasons I love your show. You guys bring something new and different to the classic horror genre. Keep going. I'm eagerly waiting for the episode, and I hope you guys have another great five-year run, and five years after that, and five years after that, and so on. Thanks again for doing your show. I love it. Can't wait for the next episode. This is Steve. Bye. Steve, that was a, a great idea. Where are you as our creative consultant when we need you? I guess we need to start running our theme ideas past you before we start recording. Richard actually clued me into your idea before you left that, but thank you for sharing it. Very clever. Uh, and thank you for the anniversary. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you very much. And yes, absolutely. Very cool idea. There's there's some cool movies that we could we could do that 
I don't think get covered as much. I mean, there's some that the go-tos, right? Plan 9 from Outer Space. But a movie I haven't seen is like Night of the Ghouls, right? And that's one of those, never seen it. How about Glenn or Glenda? That'd be an interesting one to cover. So I'm down, absolutely. Unofficially commit ourselves to doing an Ed Wood episode in the future. And I think there's some Ed Wood experts out. Thank you, Mr. Turk, for the kind words and the solid suggestion. Second feedback is from Bill Mines. Hello, my Rich, and hello, my Jeff. It's Bill Mize, and I just wanted to call in and wish you both a happy fifth anniversary. Now, we've all known each other obliquely since around the 2019 Monster Bash, where I was an attendee, didn't have a podcast, and I was just a listener and a fan. And I saw you guys, but I had a sudden attack of the shyness, and I did not come up and introduce myself. And that is totally my bad. And I regret that so much, especially since we won't be seeing each other until June at the 2022 Monster Bash. Little did we know just how much the world would change so soon after that convention. Now, having said that, I am beyond blessed to have gotten to know you each individually since then, and I value your presence in my life, and I trust and have faith that we'll be together for many more, and you will be recording for many more years. I wish you both the absolute best. And I know that you have made your mark in the Monster Kid podcast universe and that you have hundreds, if not thousands of fans who would agree with me. I want you all to keep recording, keep safe, keep doing what you are doing. And I am sure that I will be recording a congratulations message for your 10th anniversary as well. I love both you guys. God bless you, and I will see you soon. Take care. Thank you very much, Bill. I am very glad. I remember distinctly when I received a message from you explaining the Monster Bash experience, and I'm very glad that you did reach out and that we have become such good friends, the three of us. Your positivity and your support has been highly motivating for me. I won't speak for Richard, but I'm sure he has similar feelings. So thank you very much. Good luck with your upcoming adventures. And we look forward to having you back on a regular schedule for our ears. Yes. Thank you, Bill, for for those kind words. And uh, absolutely look forward to seeing you in uh, 2022. You know, since we recorded, this is that little timey-wimey thing. The world's kind of crazy as we're starting off 2022, but I'm holding out hope that that hug is coming at Monster Bash. So looking forward to that. And uh, yes, echoing what uh, Jeff said, looking forward to uh, to getting you back on a regular schedule and good luck with your future travels and, and adventures over the next several months. 
And I do have to know, you posted a, a picture in your announcement about your upcoming move from Green Acres of uh, Eddie Albert and oh, which Gabor was it? I always get confused. That would be Eva. Eva, Eva Gabor. Eva. I want to know which one are you? Are you the <laughs> country boy or are you the city girl? I kind of see Bill more of the Zsa, Zsa type myself. Yeah, so maybe. Haven't met his wife, but yes. <laughs> While we're on, we also have some new members. Let's go ahead and mention those. Uh, Very exciting, these three new members. We have Paul Ryan, Ron Jones, and Stephen Harris. Exciting because our worldwide audience seems to be growing. Ron is from Ukraine, and Stephen Harris is from New Zealand. So that is absolutely thrilling. And I wonder, Stephen, if, if you know Alistair Hughes. Our, our friend and listener from New Zealand. I'm sure, you know, it's <laughs> like, oh, you just moved to Minneapolis. Do you know so-and-so? Uh, yeah. No, Minneapolis is a big place. But if you haven't met Alistair, meet Stephen. Stephen, meet Alistair. Thank you both for listening and for being part of the Facebook group page. And we're assuming that he meant, you know, the international Ukraine. It could be like Ukraine, Idaho. <laughs> I lived in Paris for two years, Paris, Texas. Welcome. Very cool to know we've got people listening to us in other countries. A bit mind-boggling. Welcome, one and all. You can leave some feedback. Email us, classichorrors.club at gmail.com, or you can call us, 616-649-2582, or easy to remember and hard to forget, 616-649-CLUB. Please do leave us a message. We will insert it here. We would love to have some feedback from you all for our fifth anniversary show. You know, we've been doing this for five years and it really, it seems crazy because of those first episodes, we were in a basement and, and trying to figure everything out and figuring out the format and, and just having fun with it. And we, we kind of got into a groove, I think by episode three, we figured out what worked for us and made adjustments over the five years as to where we've recorded. We've recorded in a basement. We recorded in your apartment. We recorded, if I recall, I think we recorded once in a in the kitchen of the house here, I thought. Then we set it up in the media room. And of course, we've been doing this virtually now for almost two years, which and that, that sounds crazy in itself. And it's actually worked out really, really well for us. We have covered a lot of movies. We probably should have added up how many movies that we've covered. Uh, that would be kind of cool. But we've, we've covered a pretty broad spectrum of films, classics and not so classics. And it hasn't seemed like five years, but it's been an amazing ride. I just want to say thank you for inviting me. Way back when, in the fall of 2016, you had the idea and said, you want to do a podcast? I thought that was, yeah, that's cool. Let's do it. And it has been my pleasure and a tremendous amount of fun over the last five years of doing this. And I look forward to doing this for another five and another five and another five. And we'll be old men. And uh, by that point, we will have forgotten the films that we saw. So we'll be talking about uh, King Kong from 1976 again. It'll By that point, it'll be some type of chip that'll be inserted in our brain. And we'll be experiencing it in ways we've never had before. We'll be older men. <laughs> Thank you. Grandpa. Grandpa. I can't believe it's been five years. It seems like a long time ago, but yet I can't believe it's gone by so fast, if that makes any sense. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, where we were at personally five years ago oh, and, and how much we've grown. I'll say it. 
doing the show with you was just a huge part of my recovery. That first year after losing my wife, it was something that I just dived into and enjoyed. And it was a, a huge part that allowed me to be able to recover and work through my grief and get to a point where I was able to take some steps forward and continue to move in, in a positive direction. That alone, th- this show will always hold a special place in my heart. Uh, and the fact that the friendship that I developed uh, with you in 2016 that led to this will always be special to me because it, it, was, uh, it came at a very dark point in my life, but it was an incredibly bright spot and really, really helped me get through that, that very, very tough first year. I can't say thank you enough. Podcasting's addicting, and I can't say really what I've learned in five years or that I'm any better than I was the first day, but it is, it's fun. I've had a lot of fun for a personality like me to have this commitment and to do it almost every month is good for me personally. It's brought so many opportunities just for friendship, for participating in other podcasts, for writing. So it's been nothing but a positive thing for me and couldn't imagine doing it with anyone else. Thank you. You moving a few states away. We didn't skip a beat. So let's talk about three movies, shall we? Yes, let's let's talk about our, our first movie. Five. Everything for the taking. I want to tell you something. Why did you do it? Why did I do what? Get out. Get out now. In my own time. Couldn't we go back now? You little fool. I got you away. You don't think I'm going to take you back? survivors of a worldwide apocalypse attempt living together in a Southern California home. Even in such small numbers, fundamental disagreements exist, and their relationships represent the best and worst that humanity has to offer. Rich, I'm expecting you to have a lot to say about it 
I don't know about the movie, but definitely about its creator, Arch Oler, who wrote and directed the film. It is from a, well, I don't know that it's from, but in, as part of it is the poem, The Creation by James Weldon Johnson. We'll explain more of that later. Released April 25th, 1951, runs 93 minutes. I watched it on Amazon Prime. I watched it on a DVD. I think I recorded this off television at some point, personal DVD that I had for a while, but there wasn't any intro or outro on it. So I that puzzled me a little bit. I'm like, I don't know where I got this then. First time viewing for you or had you seen it? Before? Well, I thought that I had seen this when we when we decided to cover these movies. I thought it was one that I had seen, but I had seen it, but I don't remember it. I was remembering a different movie that had to do with the apocalypse, but it was totally different film. This really felt like a first time viewing because again, I don't remember anything about it. It was not what I was expecting for a couple of different reasons. For one, I was thinking of a different movie, but for two, not a common type film for 1951. I, as I was watching this film, I kept thinking it felt like a, a kind of an artsy sci-fi film that you might have seen in the in the 70s. Just the way that the story was being told, the way that the actors were acting, you weren't dealing with A-list actors. It almost felt like a, like an indie production from the 70s, even though it's a black and white film from 51. It had that feel to me. I don't know if you had the same feel. or It felt out of place for the time period. I agree. And that's interesting that we both caught that. I think part of it was uh, the character Michael, played by... William Phipps looked very modern. He had long hair and a beard. I mean, very yes. much style today that contributed to it, but it's much more than that. It, it definitely doesn't seem like 1951. Well, and I was surprised too, looking at the cast, I was like, I didn't recognize any of them right off the bat, but then so I thought, okay, well, most of these people probably didn't act in anything again. And then I was wrong because right at the bat, you know, the character of Michael that played by William Phipps, I mean, 232 film credits, he was in War of the Worlds as a character that I can't remember, but now I'm like, well, who did he play? Uh, he was also in Cat Women on the Moon, which is, you know, I've seen that once and that that movie's a bit of a struggle for me to get through. But he was in episodes of The Twilight Zone, Alfred Hitchcock. I didn't recognize him, but a very prolific actor. And so that proved me wrong. And I, I looked at the rest of the cast and most of them were in other things. We'll get to that here in a moment. That surprised me, but they were all for the most part, in very early stages of their career, they were unknowns, essentially, in 1951, which I, I think was had to be intentional because the writer and director of the film is Arch Obler, and he had a different way of, of telling stories. He had a different way of, of looking at things, and you take a look at some of the other movies that he did, they're different. They're a little off kilter a little bit. I think that kind of exactly was his style a little bit. If, you, if you're a lover of old time radio, you know the name Arch Obler. He wrote, directed, and produced and hosted Lights Out, which was one of the all time greatest horror programs from the golden age of radio. He did this show from 36 to 39, and then again from 42 to 43. He also produced and directed Arch Obler's plays on radio, which was on the air from 39 to 40, and again in 45, and then in syndication in 64. 
And then he used some of the original radio programs for a new show called The Devil and Mr. O, which was uh, syndicated on radio in 71, 72. So kind of past the golden age, uh, in addition to the other things that he did. So, I mean, he's well known. If you've ever listened to Lights Out, some of those were downright frightening stories. Very innovative, very creepy. I don't think he ever really did a film that came close to capturing that that creepy eeriness of Lights Out, but he always kind of thought out of the box for the, the films and things that he did, at least several in particular. He, he did a film called Buana Devil in 52, which is the first film ever shot in 3D. He did a movie in 1953 called The Twonky. Vince Rotolo over at B-Movie Cast, loved that. He introduced me to that film. Have you ever seen The Twonky? I have not. Essentially, it's, it's about a, a TV that gets possessed from something otherworldly and, and starts trying to influence and take over the lives. It's, it's kind of this weird sci-fi comedy thing. It's, it's a bizarre film. I think it's finally out on uh, officially. Uh, he also did The Bubble from 1966, which uh, I've got that on Blu-ray. I think you probably do too. I think when that came out, maybe Kino Lorber maybe put that out. That's an interesting film essentially about you know people who get trapped inside this, this bubble and this, this other, like in a town setting and they can't escape the bubble. This was pretty innovative for 1951. I mean, it, it was the first time that a film had been made to focus on life post nuclear war, essentially, because again, we're only so many years removed from the atomic bomb. And, uh, you know, as we'll talk about a little bit, when we talk about what happened in 1951, I mean, thermonuclear testing was happening in, in 1951. So he was really kind of on the cutting edge of what would happen if we create a bomb that could actually destroy the world. The atomic bomb could do a lot of damage, but, nuclear war was just really becoming a topic. Was he particularly political at all? I mean, there are political undertones in Five, but he also did a movie in 1945, Strange Holiday. A man returns from a trip to find fascists have taken over the U.S. government. Bubble sounds like it has sort of a, even the Twonky, they, they seem to have some little aspect of government and takeover and yeah, I, I don't know specifically on, on him whether or not how political he was, but I would agree. He totally wanted to to examine, I guess, world events, political events, the human condition. Absolutely. I mean, you see that in this film. It's clearly taking a look at the potential horrors of a, of a war situation, a devastating war, but it's also really taking a look at the human condition and, and how humans would react if they survive such a, a devastating attack. It's a quirky film, admittedly, it, it's different, but it, it is engaging in, in an interesting way because it, it just seems everything's just a little off kilter. They're not necessarily the best actors or actresses. The character of Roseanne, who's the first character we see played by Susan Douglas, I don't think that she really could particularly act very well, but that almost made it more believable. It really did almost almost seem like you were really watching like a almost yeah, I don't want to say like a reality show, but it did make it appear to be more real life than other disaster films or something where you see people get together and they are definitely actors or actresses and there's dramatic moments and and stuff. You didn't really see that. If there was drama, it felt 
real. And, and I think that was the feeling that Arch Obler wanted to get across. Yeah, that's what he wanted the audience to feel. You mentioned that it, I think you said one of the first films to depict the aftermath of a nuclear holocaust. Yeah. You don't hear very much about it. No, it seems no. like if it was, you know, a landmark movie like the first that maybe we'd know a little more about it. But there were some movies before that were about last survivors at the end of the world, but it was not because of a nuclear. In 1916, there was the end of the world. 1931, end of the world. 1933, deluge. 1936, things to come. Again, not nuclear, but definitely survivors at the end of the world. So this did have that unique aspect to it, which wouldn't have been an aspect to have 20 years earlier. When it says five, yeah, that's that's it. There's five people in the movie. And that's the maximum number. It may fluctuate during the movie. Well, yes, yes. And I'm going to say that there's one who is not in it very much. Now, are they the last real, real five survivors? Well, maybe, maybe not. We don't know. I mean, we know that this particular area, that appears to be it. But there's the potential, obviously, that there's other people out there. If these five survived, it seems likely that there's other pockets. But very limited. And you're, you know, as, as with any type of post-apocalyptic situation, only the strong are going to survive. It's the survival of the fittest. Things are going to run out very quickly, right? I mean, you're going to run out of, of food very quickly. And of course, they, you know, things are going to be potentially contaminated. So you're going to have to be careful of what you eat and what you don't eat. The character of Michael, I mean, that's something he, he wants to plant crops. He, he knows that this is something that we're going to, that's going to need to be done. You know, we're going to need to plant crops to, to survive. He's looking towards the future. We have another character who gets introduced, the character of Eric. He's not thinking logically. He's wanting to collect jewels. Well, he's got a good point, though. I mean, that's sort of the main source of conflict in this film is like Green Acres. One's a city, one's a country. This movie reminded me of 1959 World Flesh and the Devil, which is similar, very a handful of survivors, but it takes place in the city where this is mostly out in this isolated house. But they both have good points. I would probably be closer to Eric just as far as all the food we need in the city. Why do we need to grow crops here? You know, everything we need is there, but yet Michael tells him that, well, that's also the areas that were hit the hardest. We don't know what else is there that could be a danger to us. They both have valid points. Eric, though, definitely becomes despicable, taking his points way too far, and he's definitely the villain of the piece. He is. You know, so that's another thing. I didn't recognize the actor who played Eric, James Anderson, but he was in To Kill a Mockingbird, Little Big Man, lots of television work. He was in The Thing That Couldn't Die, one of the last of the universal horror films. Again, Donovan's Brain, which we've talked about. Clearly didn't recognize right off the bat. Should mention the character of, of Roseanne, who is the only female. I didn't recognize her either, Susan Douglas. She did some stuff, most of which I didn't recognize, but she was in the drive-in sequence in Targets, the 68 Moors. Oh, wow. I don't know what she played. I think that they listed her as other drive-in person or something. So, <laughs> you know, she probably doesn't have much of a role, but I thought that was kind of interesting that she did do a Karloff film, you know, some 17 years later. I mean, she's the first person that we see, and she's clearly in many ways, the most damaged because she has suffered emotional stress 
from the fact that she has survived. She ends up going to a to a house, a cabin, if you will. It's really a house that apparently what, what is it? Her her aunt or mother? I can't remember which. She knew this place. She had been there before, and she finds that someone's already there, and that's Michael. He had made it there. And then soon realizes that because there's a picture and he recognizes her from the picture that Roseanne is actually the girl in the picture. This is actually her home or she knows somebody there. Michael kind of comes off as being the typical guy, but he very quickly pulls back and redeems himself very quickly as he does kind of force himself on on Roseanne who uh, resists him. And then, of course, you know, reveals that she's actually pregnant. You know, she's married and, and with child. Then, of course, he immediately backs down and then becomes very protective of her. And even to the point where he starts building a house for himself so she can live there and he can live there. I didn't particularly like that moment. It just it really stuck out to me. And yeah, very. I mean, maybe it was the first one to do it, but it seemed just very typical. Like you expect that to happen. I was kind of disappointed that that happened. He didn't instantly, well, he did instantly back off, but they didn't drop the point. It was uncomfortable for a while until they finally kind of figured out how they were going to move forward. Of course, then when you start adding in other players into the mix, some are going to be more protective than others. I mean, we, we end up getting first introduced to two other survivors. There's the character of Charles, played by Charles Slampkin, and then Mr. Barnstaple, who has a banker. And they both survived by being in a vault, which I'm like, okay, that was one thing. It's like how, the, how these guys survived, right? Or these people survived. They were in a vault, so I can go with that. Roseanne was supposedly getting some type of x-ray or something. I'm not quite sure how that would have protected her. I can't recall. how did Where was Michael at when, he, when all this went he down? He was in an elevator at the Statue of Liberty, I believe. No, not Statue of the... Empire State Building. Yes, well, would that save you? Really? I don't know. Maybe. Well, I just liked that they did explain. You but know, at least they the did. How. But that doesn't mean they're not going to die. That protected them at that moment. But there is fallout. There's yeah in the air. We don't know that that means they're going to live forever. And what did you think about the idea? It's just planted out there. They don't do a whole lot with it that that didn't have anything to do with their survival. It was that they were immune. They had a, some type of gene or something that made them immune to radioactivity. I think that's interesting. I guess it's possible that somebody would have some type of immunity, maybe to withstand, not that they're impervious to the radiation, but might be able to withstand it better than somebody else. Doesn't mean that they won't get sick. Doesn't mean they won't may eventually die, but that they might, have a better survival rate than somebody else. I guess that's kind of goes into play with just, I guess, anything. Why does somebody get the common cold and, and somebody doesn't, you know, if they're both exposed, it's just the human body. It's possible. I found it all plausible as much as, as much as we knew about whatever the event was, because it wasn't like, you know, we don't really know what it was. We know that it wasn't really a traditional bomb because, I mean, the cities are still standing. I mean, well, I have a question about that because the, the opening credits are, I, I really liked the opening montage. It's a lot of world scenes of famous yeah. locations. And there's a montage or superimposition where there's like dark clouds moving behind and then sort of this other cloud coming up yeah. in front. The music's really good. 
you get the implication that it's worldwide, but you're right, the buildings are still standing. At first, that kind of bothered me because I thought on that scale, we've seen other movies where buildings are destroyed. Then I thought, well, you don't really know where they exploded. And regardless of if buildings are still standing, it's really the radioactivity that's going to continue to kill people. And they spend most of the time in the country. There's not a lot of scenes in the city. And by the way, they keep saying the city, but I don't know if that was Los Angeles or what, but it sure looked like a small town when they finally went there. Well, that's the case, I guess, even if there was like a, a thermonuclear attack, even today. I mean, not every city would be the level. I mean, it depends on where you're at. We know that certain cities would be targeted here in Kansas. Knowing that like where we are, you know, a lot of it has to do with your proximity, like to an Air Force base or whatever. Here in Kansas City, yeah, I likely would be gone, you know, because we have an Air Force base on the other side of, of Kansas City. But like if you go a little farther, you go to Salina. Salina is a city, small, small town, but I mean, they still have buildings, tall buildings downtown to an extent. They wouldn't be leveled because they don't really have anything there that makes them a target, so to speak. They would survive initially it'd be the radiation that would get them, you know, on, uh, as the wind would blow one direction or the other, they would end up eventually having to deal with that. There were some clues also about what happened, very subtle, but I liked when at the beginning, when she went into town and she heard a, the church bell ringing. So she tried to follow yeah. that into town and yeah. the church sign was like hanging and was like beaten up. There were letters missing, but it was like repent sinners. So yeah. you can kind of tell there was some advance warning because there was probably that debate going on in church. And then you oh, do yeah. see headlines posted like on a bulletin board from probably the last paper that was published. And it talked about the Soviets and the government. I can't remember the exact words, but government organization like coming, falling apart. Yeah. So that was kind of interesting. It, I, I liked how you could kind of get a few details and imagine what happened to bring them to that point. They don't give you all the facts, but they give you just a few little things along the way. And again, it's like, what's the movie about? Is it about the actual attack or is it about the characters? That's what this movie is about. So you don't really need to know all the, the fine details. Just know that this happened and, and now we're dealing with here's the survivors and how are they going to interact with each other. You've got the dynamics of Michael and Roseanne. And, and then, of course, then we throw in a couple more people. You've got Charles and, and Mr. Barnstaple. Mr. Barnstaple is not doing well because he does have the radiation sickness. So interestingly, though, because he was in the same vault as, as Charles, who's doing fine. Barnes, was it because he was older, maybe, you know, or was it just the human condition? His immunity wasn't as as strong as somebody else's. So Charles Lampkin plays the character of Charles. This was his first film. Again, didn't recognize him. He did lots of television work. He apparently was a regular character at one point on Mayberry RFD. Uh, he was also in Cocoon. He had kind of a lengthy career there. Earl Lee played Mr. Barnstaple. He is a native of Topeka, Kansas, mm. born there in 1886. Not a lot of credits, 25 credits, but I thought this was interesting. He was the ghost of Marley in the 1949 television adaptation of A Christmas Carol, the one hosted by Vincent Price. The one where you buy the DVD and you see Vincent Price on the cover and you think, oh, yes, he's going to play Scrooge. And no, he's, he's just the host. There's an element of racism in this, and I'm surprised they didn't play it up more in that 
is that Eric is definitely a, a racist. In fact, if you read the synopsis on IMDb, they act like that's a big part of the story. They, they're talking about the five people that live there and they call him a neo-Nazi. There wasn't really any evidence of that that I saw, no. but uh, yeah. there is a, a point where he does really let his feelings show towards Charles. Well, and let me ask you this. I didn't connect like you did that the house that she found was somewhere she had been before. And I wasn't clear where he got that picture. And I thought for some reason, I thought it was like from her purse and, you know, she's looking for her husband. And I thought it was a picture of she and her husband. And I thought the man was black. Well, I thought the same thing. I did. So that is another little thing that they could have exploited with Eric. Well, he treats Roseanne badly anyway, but you know, if he had known that she was married to a black man and I don't know that she was, it's just, I kind of got that from it. Well, because he mentioned, Michael mentions at one point that he recognized her and then he has this picture. And at first I thought, well, has she made the headlines maybe because she's married to a black man? I kind of, that's where I was initially going with that. But then I, I picked up that she had been there before that I just, well, okay, then there was a, probably a picture there of her. And so he got there and saw the picture, and that's where he recognized the picture. We do eventually see Roseanne's husband, a little bit worse for the wear. <laughs> I thought that was a little convenient. She's not too far from where he was. She goes back, and she just happens to find her husband in a waiting room at the hospital. Well... I have some thoughts about that. I don't think it's the movie opens with her like stumbling down the road. And if she was in the hospital when it happened, it would make sense that she's close to it. I guess. Yeah. yeah. I don't think that it's terribly convenient. She goes back there. I wasn't convinced that was her husband. She went to his office first. That made me think, how did she know he was waiting for her in the waiting room? She didn't. If so, she would have gone there first. Yeah. So I thought maybe she just found a body and thought that it was him. And we don't see it really. It's kind of no, off. You see the hand. How did she know it was him? Did he have well, or I think maybe the clothes. Because that was one thing, right? I mean, whatever this was, it ate the flesh, right? I mean, yeah. did they just not know enough about what nuclear, you know, would do? It, it's not like a flesh-eating disease. That's I just went with that. That's fine, you know. That's a little bit of the sci-fi element thrown in. I went with the assumption that she recognized. The clothing. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll go with that because that gives her a sense of closure, right? Because there was that was the thing. Was her husband alive? Michael and you know Roseanne think they're the only two people, but then of course, when here comes Charles and Mr. Barnstaple and eventually Eric. Hey, there is other people out there, and then of course that kind of fed into well, maybe her husband was out there, which is the door for the opening that Eric needed. He wanted to go back, and he wanted Roseanne to come with him. I want to come back to that. This is now really bugging me. If she was in the hospital when it happened and she left the hospital, I mean, granted, maybe she was dazed or something, but wouldn't she have known he was there? My first thought, yeah, she should have gone there first, right? Wouldn't you? I mean, if you were, this explosion has happened and, well, I want to find my husband, I'll go to the lobby instead of, well, I'm going to go out the back door and wander the countryside and then go out here and then think, Oh, shit, my husband's in the lobby. I should go back there and look. Yeah, that was a bit odd for me. You have to have that measure of hope and that life's going to go on, you know, which you do kind of get, I guess, at the end of this movie that, well, at least... but not before we are dragged to the 
bottom of de- yeah. despair. Yeah. I mean, I could not believe what happened. That really affected me. Yeah. You know, without giving too many spoilers away, Eric, who is the the bad guy of, of the film, I mean, he does kind of get his in the end, right? I mean, because he does discover that well, he's got radiation sickness and things aren't going to go well for him. You're going to die. And a lot of good those jewels are going to do. Yeah, those jewels aren't going to do you anything. What are you going to do with those jewels? I know. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I'm sorry. And I, I know enough that when the apocalypse happens, the cards in my wallet mean nothing anymore. The money means nothing. The can of SpaghettiOs I've got in the cabinet, that might save my life. So he gets the radiation sickness and he snaps and goes, you know, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs and goes running down the street. And that's the end we see of him. Goodbye and, and thank you for coming. Now, what happens after that? And we won't, I don't think we need to go there because it does kind of spoil the ending. But yeah, you do kind of like, let's give you that last gut punch. And then then there's that measure of, of hope that comes after that because Michael is looking for her. And so things do kind of give you at least maybe a measure of hope. Yeah. They might be able to survive. They might be able to muster out a a living for whatever you know is left that is there any chance for humanity to survive very little at this point because you're assuming there's probably other people alive but they're going to be struggling just the same and you know limited resources michael at least has got some sense about him i don't know what roseanne brings to the table well you're just making me think I didn't notice this before, but if you think about it, the movie really is about her. She's the one that has a complete arc. She, you know, it starts yeah. with stumbling down the road. It ends with her having dealt with what she needed to do so that she could go forward. I think that's a very positive message. I It leaves me hopeful, but the whole movie is just littered with little things that are just so dark and sad. I mean, you mentioned the the people that remain are, clothes skeletons. And I did wonder about that for a minute. And then I thought, yeah, I'm just like you, I'm just going to take it. I've got a couple different thoughts going here. On that, I wondered though, it's 1951. I don't know at that point what we knew about nuclear war and what the results would be. So that's as valid a possibility as anything else. I do also wonder 1951, what was the racial thing like? Was this unusual for a movie to even slightly deal with the racism and is that why they didn't deal with it more and then the other thing is we basically see her breastfeeding not graphically but we see her clothes pulled down we see her as exposed shoulder we know what she's doing was that rare or unusual for a 1951 film i mean was he pushing boundaries at all or so am i just basing it on on films that i've seen and i've seen a lot of classic films i would say yes showing that act of of implied breastfeeding was rare for 1951 let's be honest it's still rare today it's not something that you would see in a lot of commonplace settings i mean it's a struggle even for women who are doing it today in the real world to be accepted doing it out in public you know there's a still a stigmatism to it which there shouldn't be you could tell there's a lot to unpack here. And we've been talking about it for almost an hour. I kind of feel like we should move on. There are other things I want to say, but I I think I'm going to kind of back off. The one thing we haven't said is, did you like it, Richard? I did. It threw me off a little bit that sometimes the characters seemed lifeless. 
And some of that I think was the the lack of seasoned actors and actors playing the 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 role. Yet that gave it this weird kind of reality sense. I think I was thrown off a little bit watching this movie because I kept thinking again, this is like a an early 70s indie sci-fi film. It, it didn't feel like something from 51. I did enjoy it and I would recommend people check it out. It is something different. It's not a big blockbuster film, but it's it's something that that is interesting to watch and something that makes you think a little bit when you kind of just consider the time that it was made in and what we're seeing on the screen. And it's something that I'm surprised more people don't talk about. So hopefully we stir some conversation here and get people to see it. I mean, it's uh, it's out there. It's, you can rent it on Amazon Prime for $3. The DVD a little pricey at $32, but you can find it cheaper priced. Find it used somewhere for cheaper than that. I couldn't find a streaming version of it, you know, or a YouTube version or anything like that. So it's it's going to be a little harder for you to find. You're probably going to have to put a little money towards it, but it is definitely worth it. Now, I do know that this pops up on Turner Classic Movies at some point. If you just kind of bide your time and, and take a look, it, it, it might pop up there eventually as well. Yes, I enjoyed it. And I would recommend it. What about you? It's hard to say I liked it. I think it's a good movie. It's got a lot of things to make you think about it. It's not one I would often sit down and watch. Exactly. No, I wouldn't either. Even though there's a hopeful ending, it's just too darn depressing. It's hard. I don't know what I, I don't know what to say. I don't have complaints about it. There weren't things that I thought were bad, but neither were there things that really stood out and, and makes me highly recommend it. I think it's worth seeing. It didn't bore me, you know. No, so that, that's, not that's boring. It moves along. It's only what an hour um, and a half. It's not a feel-good film. I mean, you're not going to get to the end of it and think, "My God, I'm a happy-go-lucky person today." No, I mean, it's a movie that, as you said, it's it, it is a little depressing, but not overly so. It's an odd film. It's a little off kilter. It's it's worth watching. Probably not something that you would add to like your yearly list of films. It's worth a viewing. I'm glad that I rewatched it. This is 1951, so probably a good time to take a look and see what was happening in 1951. And I thought it was really interesting because some of the things that I saw definitely kind of ties into this this movie, kind of interesting. Perhaps you'll provide some context to, to help us flesh out our thoughts. In May 1951, the first thermonuclear weapon test occurred, and this was part of Operation Greenhouse. My dad was a very young Marine and was actually involved with Operation Greenhouse. My dad kept a diary. He was a Marine, but he was serving on a ship at the time that was involved in the testing. They were doing basically tests on various atolls and and out in the ocean. And my dad very descriptively was writing is like, you know, they were set off this bomb today, and it had a green hue to it. This one looked orange, and this one looked blue, which I thought was interesting. They were doing different tests and and different uh, weapons. Of course, my dad had no protective gear, so my dad did end up getting skin cancer in the early 70s. He got a letter from the government that said, you might be noticing this and this and this, and best of luck to you. (laughs) It was basically what he got. For the rest of my dad's life, he had to occasionally go and get the cancer burned off of his arms and his forehead, the parts that were exposed. 
because when they would set off these nuclear thermonuclear weapons, he was on a ship watching this happen, and all of the ash would come on the ship, and they were literally sweeping the ash off the ship into the ocean, not realizing that all of that was to a lower level, but was still radioactive. They were being pursued by what they believed to be a Russian submarine and talked about the tension on the ship and because they were trying to basically get closer. They were heading back to port, but they were still in international waters and they were being trailed by the submarine. The overall tension on the ship, dad was, you know, writing it day by day, riveting stuff and thinking how young he was at that point. I mean, 1951, my dad was, was 20 years old. He went in the military when he was 16. So 20 years old, you know, what was I doing at 21? You know, I was still out getting drunk and and being a goofball. And here my dad is, is watching thermonuclear weapon testing being trailed by Russian submarines. Mind boggling. That was very timely, I think, in conjunction with what this movie was about. The U.S. president was Harry Truman, involved in the Korean War. The Russian president was Joseph Stalin. Talk about devastation. There was the Great Flood of 1951. This impacted northeastern Kansas and the Kansas City metro area, which I was aware about, but not really aware of some of the details. This happened along the Kansas and Missouri rivers. It lasted from May to July. 17 people died. 518,000 people were displaced because of the flooding. The damage totaled $935 million, which equals now in at least in 2020, $9.32 billion in damage because of the Great Flood of 51. It did result in several dams being built and things being shored up and ended up saving a lot of lives in future decades. And even when there was some big flooding in the early 90s, things didn't flood to the level that they did before in 51 because of all the work that was done to prevent that from happening again. MGM owed the uh, owner of the dog who played Lassie $40,000 in back pay. (laughs) Rather than pay, they decided to give the rights of the Lassie character to the owner who, of course, then ended up making a lot more than $40,000 because he turned it into a television series that went on to span 19 seasons. England finally repealed the witchcraft laws in 1951, which, of course, resulted in Wicca now being to be recognized formally as a religion. Tupperware was invented in 1946. The first Tupperware party was held in 1951. Just kind of keep things balanced, right? We've got weapons blowing up atolls and and housewives holding Tupperware parties. John Frank Dalton died at the age of 103. He claimed to be the real Jesse James, but it was later proved that that was false. He was not. Viewmaster was one of the top toys that year for uh, Christmas gifts. It was the Viewmaster with Disney reels. It was the top thing that kids wanted. Top TV shows of the day included I Love Lucy, The Jack Benny Show, and You Bet Your Life with Groucho Marx. Top songs of the day included Too Young by Nat King Cole and two big hits that year, number one hits for Tony Bennett, Because of You and Cold, Cold Heart, which I thought was pretty timely considering that Tony Bennett just celebrated his 95th birthday in 2021 
and his retirement from performing live on stage. Top movies of the day included The African Queen with Humphrey Bogart, Alice in Wonderland from Disney, The Day the Earth Stood Still, a little sci-fi film. Wonder whatever happened to that one. (laughs) The Thing from Another World, It Came from Outer Space, and we're recording this. It's still Christmas time just to do that little timey-wimey thing. Scrooge, a.k.a. A Christmas Carol with Alistair Sim, was released in 1951, which, in my opinion, is the finest version of A Christmas Carol ever made. And I will be watching that on Christmas Eve or will have watched it on Christmas Eve by the time you heard this. That's what was happening in 1951. What is Dimension 5? Is it on the side of the law? Now, here's the professor's latest needle gun. These are the lethal needles. Or against it. Can it save a doomed city from atomic destruction? Unless you remove all your troops from Asia, Dragon will destroy Los Angeles. From out of the depths of time's incredible fifth dimension comes a new dimension of action, adventure, and electronic espionage. Starring Jeffrey Hunter found himself able to go back and forward in time. Eurasian beauty, Franz Noyen. Her smile was as smooth as a kitten's. I thought I told you to get dressed. You also said that I had to be identified. Her sting as deadly as a cobra's. Co-starring Harold Sakata, the hat killer of Goldfinger. Donald Woods, beware, Big Buddha is watching. their deadliest foe in a desperate race to save millions from Holocaust. Don't miss Dimension 5 Color. Time travel exists in the fifth dimension of the wacky 1960s world of intelligence agent Justin Power. He and Kitty, his beautiful Asian counterpart, attempt to stop a criminal organization called the Dragons before they assemble a nuclear bomb in Los Angeles. Dimension 5 from 1966, released in October of 66. I don't know what date. I could not find that. was written by Arthur C. Pierce, directed by Franklin Adrian, Runs 91 minutes long. I watched it on a keynote over Blu-ray, which I happened to have and didn't realize I had. Must have <laughs> bought it in one of their sales. First time viewing? First time viewing. I've been aware of it for a while. Been kind of on a wish list of mine, mostly because Jeffrey Hunter's in it. Being a Star Trek fan, that's what drew me to it. The copy that I watched was on YouTube and it came from an original film print because it was actually, it had a lot of artifacts in it and stuff, but it was actually a, a good copy and it was free. I couldn't complain. And what did you think? Um, you know, I'll, I, <laughs> so I, I will say that I liked the movie. It was an interesting film because it really was probably 95% James Bond-esque ripoff, which is, we got a lot of those in the 60s, with about 5% 
of the sci-fi element thrown in. You're being generous with that. Be, oh, well, I am. In reality, it didn't need to be in the movie at all. Really. It felt like they had a script and then, oh, we should add time travel into it. When it really didn't impact the big part of the film, it really didn't. It made for a few couple of cool scenes, right? The before and after go back and the, but it didn't really need to be in there. So I was curious, it's like, so was the the writer typically science fiction or was it somebody who was like wrote spy thrillers and like was told we need time travel in this. Arthur C. Pierce wrote a lot of other sci-fi or horror films. He did the cosmic man with John Carradine, which we may cover at some point on, on this show. We've talked about John Carradine, the invasion of the animal people beyond the time barrier, which I've seen the human duplicators, which I've seen Navy versus night monster, which I've seen uh, <laughs> cyborg 2087, which kind of deals with time travel a little bit. That one's got Michael Rennie in it. And I kind of like that one. And then The Astral Factor from 78, which I always see that movie listed on public domain sets, but I've never seen it. Yeah, this is what he did. Almost to say that doing a spy thriller was kind of outside his normal realm, I think. An odd film. It was definitely an odd film. I mean, this clearly felt like a pilot for a series. Just the overall look of the film made me think, 1966 television it had a few moments where things seemed a little grander i mean the opening sequence right i mean you got a car chase scene and then we get the little time travel things to make him go from here to there and okay that seemed fun and then so he goes from the car to get into the helicopter then from the helicopter to go to a plane and then from the plane to go into a helicopter to go under the roof to get to the you know secret headquarters of Espionage Corporation. That's an original name. Crazy opening sequence, right? It gave this big grand feeling and scale and oh my gosh. And then it just really kind of slows down and comes down to earth. And then at times the slow part really becomes a snail's pace and you want to just get a cattle prod to kind of poke it to, you know, get back into gear but I enjoyed it because there was some familiar faces and that kind of kept me going, kept my interest going. It was a bit of an odd film. I, I like Jeffrey Hunter, you know, as Justin Power, a horrible name. I don't know. <laughs> well, it's a great Justin name. Power. I mean, it sounds like a superhero name more than a spy, you know. This was at a point where his career had taken a turn, which I thought interesting because he had done some movies. He had done The Searchers in 56. He had done King of Kings in 61. He had done his own television show, a show called Temple Houston, which I'd never heard of before. Did a whole season of that. He did Captain Christopher Pike, first Star Trek reference. Uh, he did the pilot, The Cage, and then uh, it didn't get picked up. Star Trek is then a second pilot is ordered by NBC, and he didn't come back as Pike. They wanted him to, but his wife kept kind of telling him he needed to stay and do movies, right? You don't want to get locked into a television show. The negotiations kind of broke down. Enter William Shatner as Captain James R. Kirk, as he was in the first of the second pilot episode where no man has gone before. Interesting, though, that Pike has remained a unique figure in Star Trek history 
And a lot of it is because of Jeffrey Hunter's performance. I mean, he gave a good performance as Pike, and it left people wondering, what if, you know, or wanting to see more of Pike. I think if another actor had given a droll performance, we wouldn't care. But because he he was a good actor, they brought Pike into the show in the first season of the show proper, two-part story called The Menagerie. But Jeffrey Hunter didn't come back and play him. He was Pike was crippled at this point. But over the years, there have been comic book appearances. Uh, in the 90s, Pike was given his own comic book called Star Trek The Early Voyages. He's been in various paperbacks. And then in the second season of Star Trek Discovery, we have Anson Mount playing a new version of Pike and nailed it. I mean, looks a lot like Jeffrey Hunter. He was really helped that show along tremendously to the extent that he's getting his own show now. Strange New Worlds will debut later this year, 2022, and uh, will be on Paramount Plus at full season, going back to the original Planet of the Week stories. All of this is because of Jeffrey Hunter. I mean, really, I mean, his performance as Pike was, was really, really strong. But sadly, we lost him many, many years. He, he died only three years after this movie was made. He was 42. He had suffered two strokes. When he has suffered his second stroke, it resulted in a fall. And I don't know if he had the stroke and then had the fall at the same time, or if it was the second stroke led to him having a fall later on. But then it required surgery, and because of the fall and the surgery, he passed away. He never got to see Star Trek become this big convention, big, you know, massive thing. And and he was gone by the time Star Trek ended, but never got a chance to relish in its popularity. And and I think that it had been interesting to see how, how he would have handled that fame and the curiosity around that character that he created here. As Justin Power, I think he was a strong lead. I kept thinking, though, that this is not a larger-than-life Sean Connery, James Bond spy. This is a James Bond, very, very light version for television. And I would have watched more, I guess, with him. But it was a it was a television show quality, not a theatrical film version quality. And that's interesting because that's what it was intended to be. And I don't know if it's all of the movies you listen you listed that Arthur C. Pierce wrote, but there were a number of those films, like Cyborg 2087 and others. They were intended for TV, but they then were given theatrical distribution. But you're you're right. It's it's like a TV movie. The overall, I mean, he has his boss who was Kane. Was that yep. his name? Yeah, Donald Woods, 141 credits. Genre fans may remember him from 13 Ghosts, uh, 1960. There was a camaraderie between him and, and Justin Power. Justin Power kind of coming off as this ladies' man-like thing. It just happens to have a time belt, you know, which just seemed so out of place. But it's this new technology, right, that they develop. I love the scenes with the professor because it, it made me laugh, right? Because this is obviously supposed to be Q, but I never got the impression that he didn't imbue intelligence. Q always just kind of had that way of kind of funny, but he would always, you know, you would think that I could see him maybe creating some of this stuff. I didn't see that from the professor. Another Star Trek reference, John Lormer played the professor, character actor, known for three Star Trek episodes. He appeared with Jeffrey Hunter in the original Pilot the Cage as one of the survivors on the planet Talos Four. He appeared in the first season episode, Return of the Archons, and then in the third season episode, 
for the world is hollow and I have touched the sky. He also played in Creepshow. He was the father in Father's Day. The one who's always saying, Bedelia, where's my cake? That was John Lormer. So another interesting Star Trek connection. And I guess while I'm there, the female femme fatale Kitty, played by France Nguyen, known for a lot of different things, but Star Trek being one of them, she was in the third season episode, Alan of Troyes, who gets to kiss Captain Kirk and her tears made him a a slave for her love. She was in South Pacific, lots of TV, a movie that I think you covered over at your blog horror at 37,000 feet. Mm -hmm. Yep, she was in that. Um, She was in Six Million Dollar Man, which I'll be mentioning that several other times here on the show. She was also in Battle for the Planet of the Apes. She was one of the human survivors. Actually, one of the scenes that got deleted originally, but has since been restored, where they're dealing with the fact that they have the Alpha Omega bomb, which was not originally in the theatrical version. She's still alive, by the way, at the age of 82. And of course, the big villain of the piece is Big Buddha, played by Harold Sakata, best known as Oddjob in Goldfinger. 32 credits, I guess. He's known for this one, but if there was any surprise when he, of course, you see him, it's like, that's not how I would expect Big Buddha to sound. It's because he was voiced by popular character actor and voice actor Marvin Miller. The voice did not go with what I was expecting Big Buddha to sound like, and that did throw me a little bit. He died in 1982 at the age of 62 of cancer, liver cancer, I believe. I have one to add. Yes. Linda Ho played Nancy Ho. She was in Confessions of an Opium Eater with Vincent Price. And I have another Star Trek reference, if you'll accept this as one. It's very strained. But Jeffrey Hunter starred in a 1961 movie called Man Trap. And there was an episode of Star Trek called Man Trap. (laughs) Do I earn any credit for that? You do, because I did not catch that. And and that's... The fact that you know there's an episode called Man Trap. Of course I do, yeah. Well, yes, I know, I know. I mean, I just, you, your, your Trek knowledge far surpasses my Dark Shadows knowledge. I did not take the time travel thing as being that out of place. If you think of it in terms of this is just one of the new technologies they're testing during this particular adventure. The professor talks about what's he working on next, the Graviton, which is going to do something with gravity i guess yeah yeah Uh, there's all sorts of fun things there's you know interference shields that will keep people from i guess surveillance devices it will you know keep areas from being apprehended by them my favorite though is the psycho inducer this is what they put over your head to read your thoughts or force you to tell the truth or something it looked an awful lot to me like a hairdryer I was thinking the cone of silence from Get Smart. (laughs) I I don't think the budget on this was incredibly high. But, you know, I found it interesting, of course, this was dealing with, you know, a bomb, right? So five deals with the aftermath of the bomb. Mm -hmm. This is dealing with trying to prevent five from actually happening. The time converter belt I thought was used interesting in, in the one scene where Jeffrey Hunter ends up seeing the one guy get shot. That was done well, right? So he reverses it and then is able to change time and set it on a different course. Unlike 
the time reference at the very end of the movie where things happen a certain way and then there's like, well, now we're going to go back and we're going to do it differently. We'll see and you in three weeks. Yes. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. It just seems so corny. It's like, I mean, I I would rather have had Kitty and, oh, Mr. Power, you know, <laughs> or, or, or just, you know, a typical Bond ending to me would have, I don't know, it would have been out of place, but it would have been better than than that. It seemed like very a token. Oh yeah, we got this time thing. We should probably, it didn't play a really big part at the end. So let's go ahead and remember, oh yeah, we've got this. We'll use this. And I don't know, it seemed shoehorned in for me. And yet it had some really, some interesting ideas. And I mean, you can't think about it too hard with time travel or your head will explode. But something about you can't kill anyone when you're in the past because it'll create a chain reaction. And that's an interesting concept. I think the one thing, you know, time travel movies, I always think about the butterfly effect, right? I mean, the fact is that something's not there that originally was in the, in the ripple effect. Let's be honest. It, it, I love Doctor Who, but, you know, my gosh, how many different timelines has Doctor Who created over 50 plus years? Because he brings his companions back to the past. And the simple fact of them being present is changing the course of events. They downplay that on the show. They mention it sometimes, but reality is, is that no, that it's that butterfly effect is there and it, and it changes things exponentially every time that happens. Whereas like on flash, for example, every time Barry Allen tries to fix something, he ends up screwing it up even more and, and changing timelines even more. So at least they've addressed that. So it's got a solid foundation of ideas. Like I really like the idea that China had the, or this gang had the nuclear capability, but there's no way to get a bomb to Los Angeles. So they're going to ship the parts and assemble it there. I thought that was a clever idea. Maybe not so original. It doesn't seems like I may have seen that in some other movie. I liked that. It's a lot of fun. I mean, I enjoyed this movie. I didn't get any slow parts that you mentioned. It just breezed along for me. I did enjoy it. So I, I hope that people don't get the fact that I didn't enjoy it. I went in with no expectations about the movie other than maybe a tad high because of, you know, Jeffrey Hunter, but I did enjoy it. I'm just kind of pointing out that this, what the film feels like, yeah. that's not a bad thing no. actually. So if I'm, if I'm giving out that impression, I, I want to make sure people understand, but a lot of movies at this time period were doing that. You know, James Bond was so hugely popular and the, and the idea of, of a, a secret agent and and the woman and the bad guy, there were a lot of movies. And so I think this was just an idea that I think could have worked as a television show. I think it would have been interesting to see it. And there were some things that I found quite hilarious. Granted, they probably aren't the most proper things in 2022, but the fact that the, the people helming mission control at the at the agency is three, you know, gorgeous young women. And they apparently, you know, man them around the clock because they're there no matter what time. That was the Miss Moneypenny vibe in a way, sort of, right? But they were actually serving more of a purpose. Star Trek reference, another one. One of the three was, and they built, I guess, built a second sister, was Maggie Threat played Ruth. She was one of the women in Mud's Women, uh, oh. the first season episode. Uh, I recognized her and, and uh, it immediately was like, oh yeah, yeah, she looks the part. And that's exactly right. She was the dark haired, the brunette. 
kind of sultry looking one. Cause I remember the Muds women, there was, there was one who was more sultry and then there was a blonde who just kind of looked needy. And then there was the other blonde who just looked a little older and not quite, she was the one dealing with the, the self doubt and stuff. Yeah. Ruth was the, the more sultry of the three. And there's some great lines. I was texting you some of the lines as I was. Yes. Watching. Yes. Um, I think there's something cooking in that kitchen besides chop suey. <laughs> and then uh, a little bit racy, I guess. I don't remember if it was Kane or who, but someone telling him, uh, don't let that young lady throw you a horizontal curve. <laughs> yeah. And then this one. A little bit, I, yeah. A Bond-esque kind of, yeah. even the name, I'm sorry, right? It's like, Kitty so you know as the name or or nickname Kitty you know it's like yeah that, that's definitely a PG version of a uh, pussy galore name that gets thrown in there yeah and then uh, she herself says when in the time sphere don't try to make a monkey out of a kitty so I don't know it's silly it's fun I do want to say that and this will tie into our next movie believe it or not if you can think that there's a connection but. Pan Am, you know, you would think must have paid a healthy sum because the yeah. plane is seen, I don't know how many times. And then even later, there's, uh, I don't remember what it is. I've got a note, Coca-Cola. So I was thinking product placement, but I don't know that they had product placement back then. In fact, in the next movie, a similar thing comes up and I listened to the commentary and they said, I mean, not in relation to this, that Product placement didn't exist back then. It is just funny to me how much they featured Pan Am in this, if if they weren't getting a kickback. I kind of question that that product placement didn't exist because I think that it did. Well, then it financed this movie. Well, I mean, because I'm thinking like, you know, incorporating something real in, in a movie. You think back like Miracle on 34th Street, right? I mean, the, the use of Macy's in that movie was huge. I mean, that, that was product placement, not necessarily intentional, but it laid the groundwork. So whether or not there was financial deals, I guess, is the real question, right? But I mean, I think sometimes there was some conscious effort to include a product in, in a film. I, I know that I saw a version of the Laurel and Hardy film Utopia, which is their last movie and, and is their worst movie by far. A, a VHS copy that I had of that had a sequence where they're on the ship and they're making a meal. And this was done after the original release of the film, which was, you know, 1950-ish, because there's different versions of it. So this was like at some point after it had been on television, they had incorporated product placement because as they're making the meal, then they zoom in on this like can of tuna for a very long time. Yes, yes, I know that's a can of tuna. Thank you. Yep, still the same can of tuna. They did it fairly well, inserting it fairly well. And I always thought that was part of the movie. And then when I got an edited version of the film a while back, it's not in there. And I've looked online and it's not on any of the versions I found online. So it was something that was incorporated at some point for like a television broadcast, apparently, of the movie which would place it in a base of the fact of like what the product looked like. I mean, it, it was like 1960s product placement. I don't have anything else to say about it. It's good fun. I'd recommend it on that aspect. I don't think there's a lot more to be had out of it other than just a good hour and a half. 
the only other actor I, I want to just throw out real quick is Robert Ito, familiar face. He played Agent Sato, familiar character actor, 148 episodes of Quincy. He played the character of Sam in that. So he had lots of scenes with Jack Klugman. Soylent Green, which we now live in the world of Soylent Green this year. Women of the Prehistoric Planet. He was in Terminal Man, Rollerball. He was in an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man. And another Star Trek reference. He was in Star Trek The Next Generation, episode Coming of Age. He was a Starfleet officer, the one where Wesley is trying to do the entrance exam into Starfleet Academy. He was in that episode. The Kino Lorber Blu-ray is currently $32. That's high. I would do some shopping around. Maybe a used copy would be just as good. The DVD is less than 15, which is a bit more reasonable in my mind. And the print on YouTube, if you don't want to spend that, is actually not a bad copy. Uh, you know How long it's going to be there, I don't know. But if you just want to watch it for the sake of watching it, that's a good way to do it too. Definitely different than our first film. Definitely different from our next film. All three of these films in their own different corner of the universe. It's hard to do a compare and contrast because they're so yes. different. Yeah, I don't think I'll be ranking these. They don't deserve to be ranked because they're three very, very different films. Everyone has a secret nightmare about the ugliest way to die. Whatever yours may be, now it lives. What are you yelling about? People. Little people. If you take them in, you'll be taken in. Because there is no way to survive the devil times five. about those kids you've got to be kidding whatever you think they are they're not whatever you think they won't do they will what are they they're piranha you mean you feed those little babies to those big ugly things here you want to feed them <laughs> not since village of the damned has death become so brutal or survival so hopeless. You suck a mattress! Leave her alone! Leave her alone! One by one. Body by body. Death will come in its most dreaded form. They bring their own omen. And it is written in blood. The devil times five leaves nobody alive. Five children survive a snowy bus crash and seek refuge in the vacation home of wealthy businessman Papa Doc at Lake Arrowhead Village. The adults gathered there are despicable people, but do they deserve to be murdered one by one as the children's secret is revealed? 
Devil Times 5, written by John Duran, directed in part by Sean McGregor, in part by David Sheldon. We will talk about that, even though David Sheldon is uncredited. It runs 88 minutes, was released on May 31st, 1974. I watched it on a Code Red Blu-ray, and there's just a short little interesting story about that. I remember when this was released on Blu-ray earlier this year, and it's one of the eternal dilemmas I go through. Do I buy this sight unseen? And I thought, well, this time I'm going to watch it. I can't even remember where I saw it before I buy the Blu-ray. And I was grateful, and I even wrote about it in my blog. For one time, it really paid off because I do not want to own this movie. Then something happened, and it kind of festered in my brain, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And before you know it, I've ordered the Blu-ray. So that is what I watched uh, when I watched this for my second time. What title did it have on the Blu-ray? Did it have the original title or did it have the title on the Blu-ray was The Horrible House on the Hill. And they explain that at the beginning by saying, you know, they try to combine the best elements from different prints. And I guess the best one for that particular part of the movie was The Horrible House on the Hill. Which is the same print that's currently available on Shudder. And that's what I watched. This is the second time viewing for me. I watched this about, oh my gosh, 10, 15 years, closer to 15 years ago. Early days of having an iPod. I watched a a show that was uploaded to iTunes called Cult of UHF. And it was uh, the host, (laughs) very, very, very low budget, basically sitting in front of a green screen church background. And he had a Pope hat and introduced movies that were coming to him from the heavens and (laughs) devil times five was one of the films that that he played and so i remember watching it over a couple lunches i I don't recall what the print was on that one but that's the only time i've seen this so second time viewing it goes by another name as well and this is where you find it in imdb is people toys yes do any research you see a lot of posters and advertising materials that say people toys yeah I don't know which which title is. I, Horrible House on the Hill does not seem like a good title for me because it implies that it's like inbred, crazy, zany people living on a hill. And that's not what this movie is yeah. about. Devil Times Five is a good title. People yeah, Toys. The best of the three. Yeah. People Toys really doesn't come into play until the very final scene. So not a great title either. So I suppose maybe from a marketing perspective, but devil times five to me sounds better. How did you like it? (laughs) This movie was batshit crazy. It was, it was crazy. I'd seen this before and I knew kind of what I was getting into. There were certain things from a production standpoint, mostly, but there were certain things that I didn't pick up on my first viewing. And I just, as I was sitting here watching it, I was like, what is going on? I enjoyed this movie. It's low budget. There's leaps of logic and crazy production things that kind of pull you out of it. Once you kind of realize what's happening, it just becomes almost a game of like, well, is this going to be here? Or is this going to be here? But once you realize what's going on, I don't know, it adds up to be a very crazy, fun 1974 film with plenty of familiar faces some young familiar faces, other people that you'll never see in any other film and crazy, a lot of crazy stuff in this movie. I'm, it's kind of fun after five years, right? We're doing three movies that 
I, we're so set on our, our, our structure and we get to our fifth anniversary and we just, <laughs> we're going to throw it all out the window and we're going to do three movies that don't have a damn thing to do with each other, but yet they kind of work in a weird way. Now, there's no nuclear threat in this one and, and probably the first two are more potentially connected because you're dealing with the threat of or the aftermath of a bomb. This one, though, you're dealing with kids that could be, I don't know, radioactive mutant crazy (laughs) because they are all disturbed, disturbed young individuals, very disturbed individuals. I like it quite a bit. Before we go too much further, I want you to tell about the production because that's going to really be what a lot of what my comments revolve around. I will say that once you hear that story, it's really amazing the movie's as coherent as it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm not even saying it's completely coherent. But for me, it was like watching a train wreck. Not that it's bad production-wise. I mean, there's issues, but it's not bad. But I just mean the characters. Really, those adults are just so despicable. I... I I don't know. Let, let's you want to you want to talk well, about the production. So the overall premise of the film is you know these five people or they're not five people. The well, how many six? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. If you count the caretaker, wow. the yeah, okay, Ralph. So six people get together, three couples, and they're all kind of interconnected in in weird ways. There's this massive snowstorm brewing. Keep that in mind, folks. There's a massive snowstorm brewing. And honestly, at the beginning of the film, it looks it. there's a lot of snow on the ground. And the radio reports are saying, keep off the roads. If you get snowed in, you better have food because you'll be there for a while. And we see a bus crash happen. And because of the snow and the only survivors we initially think are the five kids. The kids, of course, find their way to the house madness and chaos ensue because the five kids were not on their way to to Disneyland. They were, I am assuming, on their way to or back or from the mental institution where they were at because they are all homicidal maniacs. And that's being generous. They're definitely disturbed little kids. You've got the premise that there's this snowstorm and these people are going to be trapped in without no possible chance of even walking outside and going onto the road and getting to safety. But as the movie progresses, the snow, it comes, it goes, the sun comes and goes. It's cloudy, it's snowy. No, the sun is out and there's green grass with melting snow. But then the next scene, we're back to having a couple feet of snow on the ground. The reason why that it's so disjointed and once you realize it, 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 it really does, it pulled me out a couple of times. I, I kind of, it made me laugh because there's one scene where there's mention that there's 10 feet of snow outside. And then like not more than two minutes later, you're walking out and I'm like, well, I don't know, there's the sun and there's maybe a little more than a dusting of snow on the ground. It's all melting away. It's because this movie was made over a relatively long stretch of period of time. The original director was Sean McGregor. He only did seven films total. He was not seasoned in any way, shape, or form. And whether or not who you believe, who you don't believe, might have been dealing with some mental health issues, potentially, apparently was not doing a good job. And so production was stopped. 
it was determined that most of what he had shot apparently was not usable or at least large chunks of it. And so they had to bring in another director, David Sheldon. Interestingly enough, David Sheldon wasn't really a seasoned director either. He's uncredited. He only directed three things. He did write a couple of movies. He did write Grizzly and Grizzly 2, which I thought was interesting because uh, there must be some connection or maybe friendship happened. I don't know what the connection was between David Sheldon and actress Joan McCall, who plays the character of Julie. She only has four credits to her name one of which is the movie Grizzly, and she wrote Grizzly 2. By chance, happenstance, or a connection between the two, I don't know. Sean McGregor, supposedly, one of the the controversies around him is that he had an underage girlfriend who was actress Gail Smale. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's her name. She plays Sister Hannah, very odd character in the movie. This is her one and only movie. The whole time saying, well, if, if in fact, I don't know what the age difference was, but she was underage, apparently, or certainly much younger than this Sean McGregor. And that just adds a whole level of creepiness to it. She herself was an albino that they tried covering up by putting her in a nun habit. So she plays the character of Sister Hannah, who I don't think she was a real nun. She's just referred to that. She's clearly a young child who has her own issues. I don't know, was she wearing the nun habit when the bus crashed? I don't think so. I think she took the clothes from possibly a a nun on the bus. That's kind of what my mind said. Oh, I like that. Because she clearly, you know, was one of the kids. So I I don't see that she was actually a nun. She's wearing these glasses and, of course, the nun habit for the whole movie. That's because... They're trying to cover up the fact that she's an albino, which would have added a whole nother mix, which I don't know why they why they went to that lengths to cover that up. It did, I guess, add to her character, so to speak, as being someone who I guess the rest of the adults thought was I'm actually a nun. But then we realized, I don't know, did they think she was a nun or did they think I, she you was know, a I got really obsessed with that because I didn't know. I kept thinking that we were intended to believe she was an adult nun. Yeah. Like their chaperone or something. And she never really acted like it. She wasn't leading them through the woods or anything. But I kept thinking, okay, there's going to be some revelation. She's going to rip off that habit and it's going to be one of the kids and we're all going to be shocked. That never happens. So I I think there was only the one scene in the kitchen, right? Where she kind of has her little nervous breakdown, which that was like the only- I like your theory because- I mean, it's not any more insane than anything the other kids do, you know, that dress and act like a nun. I don't know if they know she's a kid, the, the adults, or I, I I have no clue. Weird, the way that they play that out, but I guess it works. It's kind of left up to your interpretation, I guess. One of the other odd aspects of the fact that this was filmed over a stretch of time, and the whole fact is the snow comes, the snow goes, it comes, it goes, it goes, it comes, is the character of David, played by Leif Garrett. Now, Leif Garrett, popular pop star, involved in TVs and movies at this time, certainly had some very rough years ahead of him. 1979, he was either drunk or on drugs and was with his friend Roland Winkler, got involved in a car accident. Roland Winkler was paralyzed. And that pretty much 
ended Leif Garrett's music career at that point and really kind of set in motion decades of substance abuse and problems that he had, a feeling of guilt over his friend. He initially said he was going to take care of his friend, but then really didn't. And the parents, there were some lawsuits and things and all sorts of negative stuff and, and bad stuff and plagued him personally. He did finally reunite with Roland Winkler on some type of show that found out that Roland did not hold any negative feelings towards Lake because he himself said he was in the same drug and music scene. And actually, despite the fact that he had paralyzed him, he thought that Leif actually saved his life because he, he felt like he would have died from the drugs and actually allowed him to live decades more and perhaps leading a more positive life despite his disabilities. He did die in 2017 at the age of 57. I don't know if it was what the cause was, if it was related to his being paralyzed or if it was something else. Leif Garrett has, has struggled from drugs and such and attempts to try to resurrect his career and such. At this point in time, he was on the brink of becoming incredibly hot, incredibly popular, as an, unfortunately so many rock stars, he his, his star shined very, very bright and then burned out rather quickly. What I didn't know, I actually knew this a couple of years ago. Uh, I stumbled upon it by chance looking up something with actress Dawn Lynn. She played the little girl named Mo, the one who had the fascination with the piranhas, their brother and sister. Dawn Lynn best known for playing the character of uh, young Dodie Douglas on the final seasons of My Three Sons. She was in 73 episodes. She was also in ARC 2. She retired from acting in 1978 after appearing in an episode of Wonder Woman in which Leif Garrett appeared in. She's gone on to have a very successful non-acting life. Maybe real estate. I Don't hold me to that, though. Interestingly enough, their mother was also part of the cast. The character of Lovely, who was Papa Doc's wife, correct, I think, played by Carolyn Steller. She was the mother of Leif and Don, and actually, I think they tended to work together sometimes as well. In the midst of this crazy production, the movie is kind of halted, but not canceled. Um, Leif and Don get cast in Walking Tall. And they play uh, Sheriff Buford Pusser's children. Well, then production starts up again on Devil Times Five. Leif Garrett, when the movie started, had his long, curly, blonde hair. That was not part of the movie Walking Tall. He ended up getting his hair cut rather short, almost like mine, <laughs> almost a buzz cut. And so now they bring him back. Well, they need to have him look the part, right? He doesn't have his long, curly hair right now. So... They give him a wig to wear to film the scenes that needed to be filmed. The problem is that the wig that he wears looks nothing at all anywhere close to the hair that he had. The first time it becomes evident as far as like what's going on is the scene where there is a survivor from the bus crash. Like, I don't know what you want to call it, you know, the caretaker of the children. And he's following the children to the house because he's panicking, right? He's like, oh my God, because he knows what they're going to do. He gets to the house and they are like in the basement of the house or like the garage or something. They're hanging out in the shed or something. And he goes there. Well, very brutal 
but not very bloody, but a very brutal attack. The kids kind of go Lord of the Flies on him and decide to just beat the holy heck out of him. And at one point I'm sitting there watching, I'm like, well, are these the real kids? Because some of them looked like they were stunt doubles, but the camera was lingering too long. Like, I didn't think the character of Sister Hannah, I didn't think that looked like Gail Small. I thought it looked like somebody else. But then I noticed, well, who's this kid with the short hair? Who is he supposed to be? He's wearing the suit, which is what Leif Garrett's character David had worn when we first saw him, but it didn't look like Leif at all. And then at the end of the attack, then he picks up this wig and puts this wig on his head. But then I'm still thinking, well, the wig doesn't look anything. It looks almost like a David <laughs> Bowie-like hairstyle. Right. Yeah, actually, it, we see that again at least once or twice in the film. There's a scene where we actually see him with his very short hair, and he randomly puts the wig on, which makes no sense why he would have had it off to begin with, other than to let you know, yeah, this is me. And so it's implied that every time you see him with his blonde hair, his real hair, that's actually not his real hair, but he's wearing a wig, even though it looks nothing like the other scenes. It, it's, it's one of those things that just pulls you out and you just leaves you shaking your head thinking, how did they even think that that was going to be passable? And the fact is, when you think about the scenes where he is with his short hair and, and wearing the wig, it's almost like he wasn't needed necessarily in those scenes. They could have done it very differently. You could have worked around it a lot better than putting on a wig. Or I don't know, you could have found a wig that was a lot more convincing. It was just so odd. So odd. I, I think that just considering, you know, the, the constant shifting back and forth and what they did, I don't know. It just, it, it enhances the movie for me knowing this because I just sit back now and thinking, because there's so many other crazy things that aren't even really related to the production, but choices that are made with David's character, for example. I mean, I was trying to figure out what his sexuality was in this movie because there's some scenes where he's talking to Harvey Beckman. It seemed to me that he was almost flirting with Harvey Beckman, which was creepy as all get out. Yep. There is a, a cross-dressing scene with his character wearing a dress and commenting on how lovely it would look and accentu accentuate his eyes. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but in the context of the film, it came across as disturbing because he's talking with an older man about that, flirting with him in a way. And I don't know, the whole time, Harvey Beckman's played by Sorrel Book, who I'm thinking, this is Boss Hog. You're flirting with Boss Hog. <laughs> you know, it's just expecting Roscoe P. Coltrane to come in and just, I don't know. You've got the crazy cat fight scene that just seems like it's thrown in for some titillation. You've got porn music that's thrown in during some of the random sex scenes, some other odd musical choices. The interior of the cabin also changes because when they went back to finish production, I guess they didn't have access to the original sets. <laughs> the inside, it doesn't match up half the time. The one scene that I found incredibly uncomfortable was the scene where lovely is taking advantage of ralph making him like take off the clothes you know she's like not really i mean i don't know what her intent her intent was i guess to have sex with him and thinking that 
she could have her way. But then I was like, or was she doing it to try to embarrass him or was she turned on or was she, what was going on there? It was really uncomfortable. I, I, that was seen for whatever reason bothered me. I didn't care for that. I'm like, Ralph is a good guy and you're taking advantage of him. And he just felt like he was uncomfortable. You could see his body language. He just wasn't comfortable with it. And then when I think it was Julie comes in and asks what, what's going on. And then that leads to the cat fight scene between the two. Now we've got some, some naked breast flashing around. So that would show up on Joe Bob's, you know, drive-in meter that he would <laughs> a couple of breasts thrown in for good measure. I don't know. What did you think about the production of the movie and all the, the craziness of it? I watched the movie with the commentary and it, I don't have a lot to add. I just have maybe a addition to the perspective. So I don't even really know who was all on this commentary. It was a group of people and it only said in the credits commentary with cast and crew. And I didn't look on the Blu-ray case. It probably tells, but I know one of them was Don Lynn. One of them was Joan McCall. Well, she was the blonde one, right? Julie? Yes. Yes. Okay, yeah. One of the producers in, anyway, there were like four or five people, and it's like you joined a, a conversation in progress, and they knew all of this history that you just told us, but they didn't really tell us, and I knew about it because I had researched this before, but instead of like explaining that background, they just went immediately, and practically the whole commentary was, okay, this was filmed there because the walls are orange, and this one was filmed here because it's a establishing shot and that's why sean mcgregor was so bad because he didn't do any other type of shot except establishing shots and and that kind of thing so i didn't really get much more about it the one thing that i guess adds to you really is that i don't know if that house was available or not but they they weren't even anywhere near that area when they did the reshoots the lodge was actually lake arrowhead there is a lake arrowhead and then this was some suburb of los angeles where they did the interiors it sounds like there was a good script at the beginning that everyone liked. I have no idea what happened to that. Like McGregor started going off script during the shoot, and there are things that remain. You can tell what was shot in the real snow and really outside. But a lot of the scenes, they weren't really reshoots. They were new scenes written to try to establish who are these people? Why are they here? So that's why we get all those scenes of the adults in the lodge before the kids get there was all the additional stuff wasn't originally in the script. They were like making it up on the fly because they just really felt like there was no explanation why these people are here. Where did they come from? You know, what are their relationships? That makes sense. They do give a lot of background, I guess, to the characters to an extent uh, to try to flesh out the film. And, and there is a disconnect between those scenes and then the scenes where the kids are introduced and all the madness and chaos that follows that seems much more cohesive. So yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. If there was stuff that they, that was shot, but they couldn't use that Sean McGregor did. It's like, so what did they cut? Was it scenes where he was trying to, you know, did they cut stuff? I didn't hear anything about them cutting stuff. Did you? It was implied that there was stuff that, that he filmed that they couldn't use. That's I think that was mentioned on IMDb. Whether that's true or not, you know, you got to take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, I was under the impression if anything was cut, it was just because technically it wasn't usable. You know, it was a bad shot or it was out of focus or they couldn't hear or something. I didn't get the impression any plot points were cut, but I could be wrong. I wanted to circle back to the, you said the survivor from the bus. I think that was the bus driver. And okay. this is an interesting point I picked up in the commentary. 
that character was played by three different actors. So there's one of them when he's in the bus. Okay. Unconscious and they're going through his belongings, you know. Then there's one of him trudging through the snow and following the kids to the house. And then it's a third actor that's actually beaten up and killed. And so that makes sense because I often, I, I was thinking the same thing. He's like, it's like there was a disconnect. It's like, is that really the same guy? Yeah. Yeah. That, that whole sequence also doesn't match the style. But like when they did yeah, all this. What do you think about that? So it's six minutes long. It's in slow motion. It's in black and white. I get it making it sort of the centerpiece of the film and i think it's one of the worst scenes in the movie because it just and from it, it's so different than everything else right yeah. it's like that that style what didn't go into sync with anything else in the movie it stretches out far too long and if you're going for like 70s exploitation it's like well there's no blood really to speak of yeah i'll say it, worst sequence of the movie it doesn't go in sync with anything else and I kind of liked it just from the perspective of it's really unsettling. Mm. And it just it is that yeah. kids in slow motion. You would think with a production like this, that that slow motion is going to reveal all kinds of behind the scenes secrets. Like, oh, obviously that hammer didn't hit him or this or that. But it doesn't. It looks pretty realistic. I sort of appreciated that. Also, the first time you realize the kids are the way they are. So I kind of liked that. I guess there was some implications that they might not be 100% all there. And then that really exposes. It is a big moment in that sense. It, it's, it does reveal that. Yeah. This is a tough movie because who are you cheering for? Are you cheering for the kids? Because obviously none of the adults are worth anything. Ralph, I guess, is maybe the only one that you could possibly cheer for. And spoiler alert, he gets dispatched fairly early, played by John Duran, the screenplay writer of the, of the mm-hmm. film. Now, he only had three writing credits, but he did 56 credits or had 56 credits as an actor, including some fairly big name movies, Who Will Stop the Rain, Gumball Rally, did lots of TV work. But the rest of the other like six adults, so you have Harvey Beckman, played by Sorrel Brooke, Boss Hogg and Dukes of Hazard. He's not necessarily an overly bad guy. You just, he doesn't, not a very strong character. Do you feel like he's been kind of pushed aside by Papa Doc? Papa Doc, the ass of the film, played by Gene Evans. Familiar face, uh, lots of TV work, lots of Westerns, 156 film credits. You have the character of Rick, played by Tyler Locker. I think L-A-C-H-E-R, Latcher, Locker, lots of TV work. He looked a little familiar, probably because he was in Six Million Dollar Man and Bionic Woman, did some guest shots there. You have the character of Julie, which was his counterpart, played by Joan McCall, only four credits, so she didn't do a lot. She's the one who wrote Grizzly 2 and was in Grizzly. Shelley Morrison plays Ruth, Harvey's perpetually drunk wife, her look changes during the course of the movie. Did you pick up on that? She was in lots of TV. Of course, we talked to Lovely, who was Papa Doc's wife, played by Carolyn Steller, the mother of, of Leif and Dawn. A couple of the other kids, we didn't mention them real quick. Tier Turner, who played Brian, was also in an episode of Arc 2. He was in Six Million Dollar Man. He was uh, another Star Trek reference. He was a stuntman on uh, Star Trek 2009. He has done a lot of stunt work 
as well as, as acting. The other one of the kids, Susan, played by Tia Thompson, her one and only film. I don't know if she had a connection to one of the other kids or to one of the production staff or why she did one film, or maybe this was her debut and her family decided perhaps a different path might be better if she's going to be playing murderous children. I don't know. Since from the commentary that because the moderator would ask like, oh, how did you get this person to come? And it's friend of a friend. I knew somebody friend friend. Called and say, hey, can you come down? And make, so that very well could be with that the one kid. I don't know. Yeah, that, that would seem to make a lot of sense. This is a movie that is just definitely a little up on the bizarre side because of the production. Obviously, they weren't dealing with a lot of budget. And obviously, at this point, they weren't thinking ahead. But I, when you're editing the film, is there any thought at any point, the lack of logic or did they just not care? It's a film that I I enjoyed. I would probably watch this again, honestly. If it would I seek it out, maybe, maybe not. But if it pops up, you know, if Joe Bob does it at some point on the show. I I think, God, I I I wish Joe Bob would do this because the fun he'd have with all the production stuff would be classic. Definitely. If you haven't seen this, I would I would say check it out. And, and it's easy to get. The Code Red Blue is less than $20, but it's also in Shutter right now. And I believe it was on YouTube as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is a film that I think fell into public domain at one point. I mean, I think it was pretty readily available. And I guess it, it depends on the title of the film. I think the Devil Times Five title might be the version that fell into public domain. I always think that's kind of crazy. It's the same movie, just a different title. And one version can be public domain. The other can't. I would recommend people check this out. I enjoyed it. I'm glad I, I revisited the movie. It It's crazy. There's definitely some pretty brutal death scenes. <laughs> the piranha death scene's kind of funny a little yeah, bit. Girl in the hot tub. And, you know, lovely She's a she's a horny woman. She's just wanting some fun. And if she can't get it from Papa Doc, she definitely wants to get it from her former boyfriend, Rick, who doesn't want anything to do with Lovely, which I think is kind of funny. But she's definitely pouring it on hard, you know, and he he's able to resist. And yeah, she eventually, spoiler alert, meets her untimely end via a dip into the tub. And here comes Innocent little Mo with, with the piranha. <laughs> just And I which, had to think about that for a minute. Can you imagine acting in a movie where you're drowning your mother, your real life mother? I know they're playing characters. Yeah, that's like, you know, okay, okay, honey, just throw the piranha on <laughs> me. The piranha are gonna kill me. You know, they're gonna devour me, but I'll be okay. Yeah, crazy kind of crazy. I did have to wonder like, how did she get the piranha out of the tank? I guess with a net, here's the piranha, and then that was kind of like the the logistics of of getting the piranha from point A to point B don't quite make sense, but it makes for a sequence. And then it is, I mean, yeah, she does stay in the tub. I'm thinking, why didn't she try to get out of the tub? She just does kind of stay in the tub for a length of time. Well, before they throw the piranha in, they're holding her under. Are they really that strong? I don't know. It's like, and I guess the piranha, you know, are, are, are nibbling and I don't know. It worked, though. I mean, <laughs> pretty brutal. Honestly, all the deaths are fairly brutal. So, <laughs> Except Leif's little axe that he kills. <laughs> yeah. Like, 
Boss Hogg's there telling him, trying to teach him how to chop wood. And yeah, it's not that he's not strong or can't do it. It's just this teeny little axe. It's a teeny little axe. So (laughs) if he was going to use that axe, if he split the wood, I'd have been pretty impressed. And this is a movie that we normally don't do spoilers, but I feel like we have to talk about the final scene a little bit. Safe to say the annoying adults get what's coming to them (laughs) in, in a way. I guess, did they deserve that? Maybe, maybe not. You asked earlier, who are we cheering for? I think Rick is the closest thing to a hero. I mean, he's the last survivor. Yeah, like I said, Rick and Julie are probably the only ones that, I mean, because, I mean, Ruth is is perpetually drunk and not really a, a, an overly nice character. And, and old Lovely is just, yeah, she kind of deserves her. And Ralph, again, is the only one who didn't deserve what he got to him. And he had a pretty brutal death. I think, though, that, it's the the potential for a sequel was there very plainly, but we never got it, right? So there's the final scene that plays into the original title of the film, People Toys, which is so bizarre because it didn't really seem to fit the rest of the movie. The kids were homicidal, but then all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, they're homicidal, but now we're going to throw this little twist because we're going to play tourist trap with them. We're going to go ahead and and prop them up and dress the the bodies up the overall thing of of sister hannah saying well there's more people to play with out there what was it the end it didn't say the end did it say the beginning is that what the beginning yeah yeah which clearly implied that we almost like we saw this like the origin story and, and like there could be and there could have been i mean if the movie had been more successful there easily could have been another sequel where the five kids are picked up by some people who are leaving the village. Oh my gosh, these poor kids. Well, why don't you come home with us and we'll call the authorities and things lead to things. I mean, I honestly, if this movie would have been done in the eighties, we probably would have had like a franchise built around this. I don't know if that would have been a good thing or a bad thing, but I probably would have watched it. You know, it's my seventies sweet spot. There's a lot of aesthetics of it that I like. We've said it all. It's it's what it is. I do want to mention, and this has happened to us before, Richard. This has happened on our very first episode. We've planned our topic. We're all excited. We're ready to go. And before we record, we learn someone else is doing it on their podcast. If you recall with King Kong, we thought, oh, it's the anniversary. We're going to do it. No one's done this. And then Monster Kid Radio does it like two weeks before we air our episode. Our friends at Nightmare Jughead. Their episode oh, yeah, yeah. yesterday, Genius, yeah. Devil Times Five. I did not realize that. Yeah. Oh my gosh! So I, uh, I you know, I think it's the Google thing, right? I mean, Google knows everything that you yeah. do, and so they probably they pulled up Facebook, and then there's probably you know, hey, you know, Devil Times Five. Here's a website. Have you gone to that? And then they're like, yeah, we should do that movie. I, I, I'm going to blame it on Google. I haven't listened to it yet. I wanted to get ours in the can and. It happens, and I don't think they would think we're copying them or anything. It's just a coincidence. So I want to call them out, and we haven't mentioned them in a long time, and they're great. If you want to know more about the movie and maybe a different perspective, be sure to listen to that episode of Nightmare Junkhead. I love Greg and Genius. Their take on stuff is sometimes similar to us and sometimes very different. I can't wait to to hear their thoughts on this movie. Oh, my God. What a good conversation to listen to. Absolutely.
Very good then, three up, three down. Let's take one more break and we'll come back and do new business. We interrupt this program for a special news bulletin. Mize, the creator of the Bill Watches Movies podcast, and we're interrupting your regularly scheduled program to ask you a few questions. Number one, have you been feeling a little stressed these days? Number two, do you need something to make you laugh? And number three, would you like to just do nothing but relax and listen to a good story? Now, if you answered yes to the above questions, then I invite you to check out my show, Bill Watches Movies. It's a little bit Hollywood history, a little bit old-time radio, and a little bit Mystery Science Theater 3000, well, except we don't have any maroon janitors, wisecracking robots, or inept mad scientists. What we do have is a trip down memory lane as we take a very unique look at the B-movies of yesterday and offer you something to make you smile, something to make you laugh, and something to make you think about what you would do if you realize that Bella Lugosi was working on creating an army of atomic-powered supermen next door. So join the rest of the gentle listeners and come on over to BillMakesPodcast.com or look us up on your favorite podcast subscription and transmission machine and subscribe today. I look forward to telling you a good story each month, powered only by my weird sense of humor and a shot of Woodford Reserve Double Oaked Bourbon. I hope that you'll join me on this journey. Take good care of yourself and those that you love. And hey, keep an eye on your next door neighbor. I mean, you never know. We are back for new business. And Richard, I've got quite a healthy list of home video releases. I'm going through March, though. We'll maybe explain a little bit why later. But also, I just thought there's so much good stuff coming out. I, I thought I would read it. And I've got several questions for you on some of these things. So oh, okay. As far as January goes, uh, we only have one release that we haven't already talked about. That's the Toolbox Murders from 1978. That's coming out on Blue Underground on Blu-ray. And then February is pretty packed, especially that third week. On the first, we have yet another release of Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 78. This is the 4K version. So if you've got the 1, 2, and 3K, you got to get the 4K <laughs> on Kina Lorber. We've got uh, Shout Factory on the 8th, Paranoiac, Hammer Film, Mark Maddox doing the cover. Great cover to me, better than the movie. That's my opinion. On the 8th, we have two from Mondo Macabro that on the surface look interesting and even their synopsis, but the more you look into them, I don't think they're really horror. I think they're more of uh, a different type of exploitation. The Laughing Woman from 1969 and School of Death from 1974. February 22nd, here we go. We've got The Howling in 4K from Shout Factory. 
We have Alligator from 1980 from Shout Factory. This is the one I hinted at last episode that when that was announced, saw a lot of people really excited that that's coming out. Maybe it's never been on Blu-ray. I'm not sure. I know it's a good movie. It's a much better than average movie, Nature Gone Wild movie uh, about an alligator running through the sewers of New York. Have you seen that? A long time ago. Very long time ago. Also, its sequel, which came out in 91, so normally we wouldn't even mention it, but since it's related and I'm not even really sure I knew it existed, Alligator 2, The Mutation, is coming out on Blu-ray. You know, that is now more than 30 years ago. No, 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 no. (laughs) We have from Kino Lorber on the 22nd Village of the Giants from 1965. That's a fun movie. I saw it on Spinguli and it wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be. You might like it a little more than I do. I I enjoyed it. I wouldn't necessarily feel like I have to own it. No, I don't. I didn't say I was buying it. Uh, Okay. Now, here's my question. So, Indicator is a label from the UK. Yes. They always have fantastic releases. I always. Yeah. And, you know, there's no reason you can't buy those now other than they're probably a little more expensive. I mean, with region free Blu ray players and things. But, I think they now have a U.S. label because there are some movies coming out in the first part of the year on one place I saw Indicator U.S. And so I did some investigating, and the best I can tell is that there is some company in the United States that's made a licensing agreement with Indicator and is going to be releasing their titles in the States. So either way, that's good news for us, bad news for our wallet. Kind of like Arrow Video has the two divisions. So not everything that gets released over in the UK gets a US release, but a lot of them do. So, yeah. So on the 22nd, and this one I've already pre-ordered, and at that time I didn't even realize it was from Indicator. I don't think it's a good movie. I've never seen it, but it has Mr. Peter Cushing, so I've got to have it. This is The Devil's Men from 1976, also known as Land of the Minotaur. Oh, okay. I was like, Devil's Men. I've never heard that before. Yeah, that's how they're releasing it. And I'm like, I've never heard of that. And I saw, oh, it's Land of the Minotaur, which has a horrible reputation. I've never seen it. I, You know, I have it and I've never seen it. It it, it was in a set that I purchased years ago of, I think they called them like grindhouse classics or something. It was dual-sided because I ended up getting rid of most of the other discs, but I kept that one because it's got Peter Cushing. And the flip side is The Hearse from 1980. Also a movie from 73 called Voices with Michael Hemmings. It is horror. Uh, I I thought it was something else, some other one-word thing, images or something that I watched from about that same era. But it's not. It's something I've never seen, but looks really good. That's an indicator. Now, You mentioned last time that there was a Santo box set coming out and you weren't really interested in it because it was, but is this the set that's coming out February 22nd that you were talking about? It's Santo El Enmascarado de Plata from VCI. Yeah. It has Santo and Blue Demon versus Dr. Frankenstein, Santo and Blue Demon versus Dracula and the Wolfman. Is that familiar? Is that what you were talking about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's the 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 one thing about that is that it's the the English dubs, so oh, it's not the original language. Now, yeah, awesome that we're finally getting like some official Santo releases. Unfortunately, these are the English dubs, but for some people, that's not going to be a game changer too much. It's not going to prevent people from buying it. For me, 
I have all the movies already except for one. The copies I have are pretty good, and the copies I have are the original Spanish language, which is always my preference. So it's not worth it for me to buy this box set for the one movie I don't have because I could get that movie in its original Spanish language. You know, it's just one I haven't haven't acquired yet. Going into March on the 8th from Film Detective, who, you know, is putting out a decent movie every now and then. Don't know if this is. I've never seen it. Monster from Green Hell, 1957. Uh, you know, the thing about Film Detective is that the, the prints they use are good quality. And sometimes I think the best available. Their selection of films usually kind of fall in pseudo public domain. But the prints aren't pseudo, are, are, are definitely not public domain. It depends how you look at it. I've seen that movie. It's not bad. It's not great, but it's it's not like bottom level, I don't think, anyway. I mean, it's probably mid-level quality at best. Cool, though, that it's getting released. I'd have to kind of take a look and see what version I have. The last couple of releases from Film Detective were interesting, but not enough for me to want to spend the money on it. Frankenstein's Daughter was one that I was kind of like, it's not that great of a movie. I don't have it. I could get it if I wanted it off YouTube and I'd be fine with it. Monster from Green Hill. I'd have to take a look and see my version. That's that's tempting. I didn't know they were putting that out. That's That's a potential purchase for me. March 15th, Shout is putting out another Hammer, another Mark Maddox cover, Nightmare from 1964. And then March 22nd, two more from Indicator. Richard, I think these are going to be up your alley. Phantom of the Monastery from 1934 and La Llorona from 1933. I have Phantom of the Monastery or Phantom of the Convent is different names. Yeah, that one, I, you know, I'm, I'm happy with the print I have. Now, La Llorona, I have, oh. but not, I, I, I acquired a copy, <laughs> but it's only the Spanish language version. There's no subtitles. Richard, you just aren't pleased. It's either subtitled and you want to <laughs> you want subtitles, or it's in Spanish and you got to know Spanish. You are picky, picky. I, I am picky. I, you know, if I'm if it's Spanish language, I'd like subtitles, so at least I know what's being said. Fair enough. But that said, that would interest me. Now, is that a U.S. release though? It's that indicator U.S. Yeah. Oh, my wallet weeps as Jeff yeah. continues to talk. I'm like, yeah, look oh. those up because the covers look interesting. Ooh, like they're across. part of a series, maybe? Well, that, that's kind of promising. You know, there was something I saw last night. I, I snapped some shots because I didn't have, it was on my phone, but it was, I don't know the release date, VCI, March 23rd. So this is something maybe you don't have on your list because this just yeah. got announced yesterday. Coming to Blu-ray, March 23rd, VCI. It is a... Mexican Horror Classics double feature, El Escapulario, or The Scapular, from 1968, and Ladron de Cadavers, or Cadaveres, 1957. <laughs> so 68, you're getting late 60s, films are changing a bit. 57 would still be definitely classic, classic. Very cool cover, actually, for this, so... That's a definite purchase for me. I have never heard of El 
Escapulario. I actually have Ladrón de Cadaveres, or the Body Snatcher, I guess is what it translates to, but I've never seen it, actually. Now, I don't know if this will become a new feature on the show or not, but you mentioned you've got some things to contribute as far as things that are coming out, uh, not technically home video. So yes, I do have some cool stuff I want to announce, but I, I do want to actually talk about one set that's already out. It's something I just discovered that definitely falls in our wheelhouse because it's a title we've talked about and something that also has just been announced this last week. I don't know that there's even announced date yet, but Shout Factory is putting out another one of their limited Blu-ray releases. Mm, yes. The Day the World Ended, 1955 Roger Corman film. I think it's what, 1,500, 1,700 copies, something like that. So it's a, you want it? Buy it when it comes out because, and I think they're actually taking orders for it now. That's a movie I've never seen. So I was kind of like, I had to to look and there was actually a really, really good print on YouTube right now. So I don't think I'm going to do the Blu-ray because I I was pretty happy with the print that's on YouTube. So um, I may or may not have downloaded that. I did not commit to anything. And it's kind of cool though that I mean, that's the world we live in, right? Some of these Blu-rays, are they do get these limited releases, and you got to act because they will probably sell out. I mean, something like that, classic 1955 Roger Corman title, kind of sad that it's only getting 1,500, 1,700 copies, but it will sell out, and then that's it. And then at that point, and that's the only tempting thing, right? It's like part of me does want to get it because then if in six months I regret not getting it, it'll be selling for like 60, 70, 80 bucks on, on eBay. I'm debating that. I only saw it for the first time in July and I thought it was okay. I wrote about it and gave it a five. Well, see, that's good because my wallet now is happy because it says, listen to Jeff. Jeff says you don't need it. You're happy. Well, I didn't say I wasn't going to buy it. I'm just saying. (laughs) The other one is from, and this is interesting, Flickr Alley. Now, Flickr Alley is like the Criterion Collection label for typically silent films even to the fact that like their finds on their Blu-rays have numbers and, and I've got several Flickr Alley sets in my collection because I love silent films. They've got a set out right now called In the Shadow of Hollywood. And it is for, I want to say public domain. They're not public domain, but they're uh, Poverty Row films kind of from different genres, really good prints and kind of representing basically you know, the fact that Poverty Road could put out really good films, right? And one of the films on the set is The Crime of Dr. Crespi, which is definitely a horror film uh, with uh, Eric von Stroheim. And we talked about that as a potential film that we would do on the show here. I love Flickr Alley's uh, sets. This is, to me, I, I looked at the other films. There's a Fay Ray film that's in there. I can't remember the title, that set obviously has been bumped to the top of my list. I didn't know that it was out. And I'm, that one is one that's a no-brainer for me. It's almost really. It's just like the prints that I'm going to get on this set are going to be better than anything I can find anywhere else. Significantly better, most likely. Interesting that they're getting into sound films because typically they've done, for the most part, they have done silent films. Now, this is not the first sound film they've done. They've even put out some documentaries recently. So they're expanding their horizons a little bit and kind of cool that they're kind of dipping their toes and, and putting out a set like this of sound films that 
might not otherwise have gotten released anywhere. We've mentioned Shudder before. They've done and, and, and Shudder has been throwing some older films on there recently, which I think is really cool. Shutter is not that expensive. It's less than $10 a month. And you do, you know, in my mind, if you get, if you watch one or two movies a month, you know, you've paid for, for the service. They put a lot of cool documentaries on there. Uh, there are different shows that creep show the, uh, is in its what second or third season now. Uh, and I've enjoyed the, the creep show anthology. Have you watched any of those? I have, um, not a fan. I can. I can. Well, I can. no, it's not that I'm not a fan. They just haven't grabbed me yet. I. I don't know. The last season was very uneven. Some of the episodes I thought were good. Some were like, eh. They've got some cool stuff that's going to be on in January, and it's very timely because there is the Severin box set about folk horror that's out. A lot of people, you know, were hyping it up, and and some people are saying it's the release of 2021 rivaling the Christopher Lee box set, whatever the case, it's, it's a selection of films that not enough for me to want to get the box set, but there was definitely some films of interest on there. One of the things was um, documentary, but Shudder is kind of doing something that Turner Classic used to do and stuff would come out. Sometimes Turner Classic would throw the movies on there. I've noticed Shudder there's some type of, of connection, and I don't know if they've got some deal with Severin. I do believe there's a deal with Shout Factory of sorts. There's some connection. There's some some uh, chemistry happening there, which is kind of cool, and we benefit from it. In January, Shutter has added Blood on Satan's Claw from 1971, Witchfinder General, great Vincent Price film, The Wicker Man, classic with Christopher Lee. I'm just kind of scanning through the list here on this site. Blood for Dracula, which has just recently been given a Blu-ray release. The writer-director Paul Morrissey and star Udo Kier. Flesh for Frankenstein, which I know also just recently got a big fancy Blu-ray release. Now, this particular article says it's available in both 2D and 3D versions. I got to think that they just pulled something from the blue from the Blu-ray release. I can't imagine a 3D version on Shudder. So that's got to be a misprint. Scanning down the list, there's other films. Some of them like Dream No Evil from 1970 is on there. Uh, a film from 1973 called Malatesta's Carnival of Blood, which as we talked about is from, what's that box set? American Horror Project. Yeah, which is one that I think that's gone out of print as well. The Witch You Came From the Sea, that's going to be on Shudder in January. Beyond Dream's Door, the documentary from, from Severn that they did, Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, a history of folk horror. January 10th, it's going to be available. Well, here's another one, too. This is interesting. I just, I just noticed as I'm scanning through Lake of the Dead, the 1958 Norwegian film. Ooh, yeah, that's good. That, that is going to pop up. Uh, what's the date here? I don't have the date, but it's going to be on in January. And then uh, I think it's January 10th is when that debuts. January 27th, Boris Karloff, the man behind the monster. This is a documentary. Shout Factory did not want to do. They didn't want to handle the Blu-ray release of that, apparently. But because they own the rights to the documentary, they signed a deal with Shudder. And that actually is giving the makers of the film 
the money that they needed to continue with the Blu-ray and DVD production. Pretty solid list of stuff, though, coming up this month, January of 2022. Let's move on to birthdays. We've got several good birthdays to mention, not the least of which, Richard, this is for you, January 20th, 1920, DeForest Kelly. No, we haven't done an episode with him in it, but since he's Star Trek, I thought you might like to hear that. You know, we could only do, I think, two movies with him. He did a movie in the late 40s. Yeah, but one of them's Night of the Lepus. And then the other would be Night of the Lepus, which he's in marginally. Yeah. We also have on the 22nd in 1893, Conrad Veidt. He was in The Man Who Laughs, Man Who Laughs, right? Yes. Yeah. Man yeah. Doesn't Laugh, Man Who Laughs. From episode 51, The Sound of Silence. January 31st, 1921, John Agar. We talked about him and Tarantula in episode 58, Back to the Drive-In Part 1. February 4th, 1922, William Phipps. He was in a movie called Five that we talked about in episode 65, five-year anniversary. That's this episode. <laughs> I didn't know if you caught that. Or I, I caught that. I was saying. Okay. It just wasn't funny. I, yeah, I get it. But it, it, it took, I was like, as soon as I was registering, you asked me about that. I was like, wait, wait a minute. I'm doing the math in my head. But didn't we just do that? Yeah. February 5th, 1941. You get a Star Trek. I get a Dark Shadows, David Selby. And we've talked about Dark Shadows twice, episode 10 and episode 20. Some anniversaries. We have February 3rd, 1941, Devil Commands was released. We talked about it in episode 15, Boris Karloff. Who slew Auntie Rue? February 11th, 1971, episode 38, Happy Hexploitation Holiday. So that was just a cup about this time a couple years ago. Yeah, yeah. And then February 17th, 1933, Mystery of the Wax Museum. Episode 34, talk all about Fay Ray. Tell us, what are you up to? This is kind of hard, right? So as of right now, what I'm up to, we're building up. What are your plans for the new year? What do you... You know, this is interesting. So I've got some ideas and something just really coming up right before we recorded, which does kind of tie into something that we'll be announcing here. I think that I'll be doing something with Dread Media. Des Reddick over at Dread Media is doing a theme month, which he hasn't done in quite a while. In February, he's focusing on folk horror, which comes about from the box that we just talked about. He threw out the idea, he wanted me to be involved, maybe do a segment or do some type of tie-in. And then even throughout, he and I actually reviewing a movie together. And for all the years that I've been on Dread Media, Actually, Des and I have only talked two times on the show, once for an anniversary show that he did and once for the 666 episode. The thought of being able to do a movie proper with him is actually really kind of fun. I, I love what he has done over at Dread Media, and I've listened to that show for years. So something possibly brewing with folk horror, and it would air, I guess, in, in the month of February, which might lead to some other tie-ins that I could potentially do such as throwing out my thoughts in the documentary or the blood on Satan's claw, which I've been wanting to revisit, which is on shutter. So it's just all kind of coming together really nicely. Other than that, I do know that with my OTR Wednesdays, my old time radio Wednesdays, I'm going to be starting the Sherlock Holmes series, which people are saying, which one, because there's so many, I'm going to be, 
offering up on Wednesdays the Basil Rathbone Nigel Bruce uh, series. I love that particular series. And Carl and I were watching the Sherlock Holmes movies, then we got sidetracked, and it's been <laughs> 10 months since we did something Sherlock Holmes related. So we're going to be, uh, other than the Christopher Lee movie we would watch, which kind of got us thinking, That's, we want to go back and to finish up all my Sherlock Holmes movies and, and stuff. That radio show is a, such a fun show. It ran from 39 to 46, I think, with Basil Rathbone on the lead, in the lead. And there's a lot of those missing, but there are a lot from the later years that are still available. And so I'll be showing those, or not showing those, presenting links of those on uh, Wednesdays on the blog and probably throw it up over at monstermoviekid.wordpress.com because that's Sherlock Holmes kind of ties in in a weird kind of way. Mystery, not necessarily horror, something fun to throw out there. A couple of other ideas of stuff possibly, but not really sci-fi or horror related for about 10 seconds. I thought about diving back into Hitchcock again you know me, I mentioned that every once in a while. I was like, ah, I want to do that. I think Hitchcock's going to happen sooner than later. Not going to happen at the start of the year, but it's definitely something that I'm really wanting to get into. I just want to get a few other things that Carl and I are watching off the plate. We'll kind of see what happens. That's kind of what I'm thinking to start off the year. Nothing big or drastic. What is happening with you as the new year begins? Well, if anyone is listening to this in the middle of January, you will have noticed darkness on my websites. You will recall that I finished up my Christopher Lee month in December. I hit some of those other Euro horror movies of his that we did not talk about. And I finished up Eclipso on DC Comics Guy and even came to a good stopping point on TV Terror Guide. I am taking at least a month off for work stuff. I'm going to actually study and try to get certified in human resources. So I'm going to focus on that. I know I will miss writing and I hope I come back with some new ideas uh, of things to do, but I really need to focus on that. I haven't studied or taken a test for anything in years. I don't know if I can do it, but I really need to focus on it because I need to pass this thing. It wasn't cheap and I won't get reimbursed if I don't pass. So I'm focusing on that, and we'll see what comes after that. But there's lots of good stuff. I finished the year with a lot of stuff. So if you're behind, a good time to catch up, maybe. I guess that kind of segues into the fact yeah. that we're going to be going into a slight period of darkness for the podcast. So to allow Jeff time to focus on work, there will not be a February episode. We will be back in March. For us, it's kind of weird. We're, we're recording this before Christmas. It'll probably be a solid two to two and a half months before Jeff and I record again. But we will be back with a March episode. We've got the theme picked. And continuing this, this re role reversal to throw things <laughs> off, I'm going to throw this to Jeff and ask him, what are we doing in March for our next episode, which is in two months. Yeah, we're going to have a more conventional theme then than we did today. We're going to look at the Quatermass series from Hammer. We're going to watch Quatermass Experiment from 1955, Quatermass 2 from 1957, and Quatermass and the Pit from 1967. 
AKA awesome. five million years to Earth. Yeah, there's other names for all of those, and I always yeah. get them mixed up. So that'll be fun to see. And Quatermass is a big franchise or was in the UK. So I imagine we might have some peripheral, peripheral things to talk about as far as those go. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, it's kind of funny. We were talking about themes for this episode and movies with the number five in it. And you had five million years to earth, I think is one of the suggested titles. And that's why I was like, oh, we got to hold that. We should do a equator mass episode. So it just kind of happened that way. You got plenty of time, folks. And actually, all three of those movies are readily available, I think, now. Quatermass, I know, was on Blu-ray. Quatermass 2, I got released officially because you got yourself a Blu-ray copy of it, which meant that I got your DVD copy of it. And I'm pretty sure Quatermass in the Pit is available as well. Just for fun, we pretty much have our April episode locked in. I'll throw that out just let people know is like, no, just because we're gone for a month doesn't mean we're going away, means we're letting Jeff focus on what he needs to. And then we've got some ideas already planned out because we know that come June, we're going back to the drive-in. So we're going to be back in the drive-in for June, July, and August. May, we don't know what we're doing yet for May entirely, but we do know that in April, we are going to be celebrating the films of Lon Chaney Sr., we don't know for sure which movies we're covering. We've talked about lots of different ones. He Who Gets Slapped, The Monster, The Unknown, West of Zanzibar, both versions of The Unholy Three. I think we're probably going to avoid like The Hunchback and, and Phantom because those are so well talked about. There's definitely some fun films we could do there. Yeah, we got some fun stuff coming up. Happy New Year to everyone. Hang in there. We'll be back in two months, ready to go with some good Quatermass conversation and Lon Chaney on the horizon. Five years. Just thank you for listening to the show. It's been a five fun years and looking forward to the next five. Well, I'll close uh, introducing our final song. And, you know, we've gotten a little predictable. I usually like to surprise Richard with the songs and don't really tell him, but he's got me figured out now he texted me last night by any chance are you doing songs from the fifth dimension we watched a movie called dimension five so yes of course i had planned to do that i'm debating at this moment which one we're going to play but i'm going to go with your request and we're going to listen to the age of aquarius by the fifth dimension it's from their 1969 album the age of aquarius that's available on itunes and i'll just throw a shout out to up up and away because that's a great song, too. Jeff may decide when he's sitting there, I don't want to do Aquarius. I want to do Up, Up, and Away. You'll find out in mere seconds which one Jeff went with. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you for your support. We will be back in two months. Yes, see you before you know it. Stay safe and take care, everyone. Bye. Bye.